idiot. You see that toothy son of a bitch? You ain't even squeeze. Got it. Got it. Just get on the Walt. damn bamboo, Josh. Stop screaming, Walt! Walt. Ah, my shoulder. Walt. And so that's oh, the, this. And that's the podcast because that's a drift. Season two, episode two of Lost Down the Hatch, which we're the, the about poor tonight. story of a man who can only say the word <laughs> Walt and how he got into that condition. Oh my God, uh, a drift, or as I like to call it, Mike, Walting for Godot uh, is this episode of Lost. <laughs> Sawyer puts his boots on. He stares at them. <laughs> you know, it is an episode of Lost that we are going to be talking about here today on Down the Hatch as we continue forward into the second season of Lost. Um, hopefully, this is not the first Lost podcast of the week. If all of our ducks are in a row, and perhaps even if our sharks are in a row, then this is the second Lost podcast you have on your Down the Hatch feed this week. If it's not, that podcast is going to be coming your way very, very soon, I believe. Uh, and even so, I just want to be enigmatic about it because the surprise is important. And you'll see, yes. you'll know it when you see it. It'll pop up in your feed and you'll be like, uh, excuse me. And then you'll press play and you'll be like, um, what? And that's the podcast yeah. that you'll be getting uh, as the bonus podcast. I will warn you when you click on the podcast, you'll be prompted with a question that asks, are you him? <laughs> and if you respond incorrectly, you will not be allowed. Yeah, you'll in. not be allowed in, uh, you will not, uh, be on the, the right side of the line, uh, for that podcast. But, uh, we, we will accept feedback for that bonus episode of Lost Down the Hatch for our orientation podcast next week. I'm sure, uh, uh, there will be some questions at the very least. In the meantime, <laughs> in the meantime, Mike, we got to talk about a drift here on Lost and the Hatch, a Lost Rewatch podcast, spoiler-filled Lost Rewatch podcast here on Post Show Recaps. Of course, if you have not done so already, subscribe, uh, postshowrecaps.com slash down the hatch to our Apple feed. You can send in feedback down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com, plus on Twitter at postshowrecaps. I'm at Round Howard. Mike is at a Mike Bloom type. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I in the texting in the lead up to Adrift, uh, Mike Bloom, you're not a typically like angry guy or even like, a, you know, you've, you're a human being. You've got your, your demons that you battle. But I wouldn't even in those moments, I would never call you a dark guy. Uh, but the way you were talking about Adrift was like veering towards darkness. 
Well, I'll, admittedly, it was not a great week for my depression, so it definitely might have come from that. Like you said, actually, during our Homecoming podcast, sometimes loss finds you where you're at, and I was not in a particularly great place when I first watched this episode. I will admit, I did watch it again when I was in a good, mood good, to good. Make sure that doesn't <laughs> color my situation. That being said, I didn't, didn't change my opinion that didn't much. Really I mean, we we have we've discussed this. Uh, I have said that Adrift is one of my least favorite episodes when we did our round-robin episode rankings here on Post Show Recapped with Antonio Mazzaro and AJ Mass. This was the lowest-ranked episode that I personally contributed to. Uh, I know that you had ranked it third to last in your most recent Lost episode For THR, rankings. yep. That being said, I was genuinely intrigued to revisit it. And what I will say overall, because there's a lot of stuff I want to say about this, take a big old bite into it like a nice shark, is that I think in rewatching it these past couple times, there are certainly elements that I didn't like about it before that I am less mad about now. But almost to supplement that, there are things that I'm now more mad about than I was before. Mm. So it's sort of it's just like a nice Indiana Jones-esque replacement of the weight as they try to grab this golden tiki of an episode. Yeah, okay, so the stakes for me heading into discussing Adrift is... Is Adrift the worst episode of Lost through this point in Lost? Uh, up to date, uh, the answer to that question for me is whatever the case may be, is the, is the one that I, that I point to in my official THR rankings. Whatever the case may be is the second worst episode of Lost, and Adrift is third. And is this a horse race? Will that, will that change? Will, will Adrift meet me today in a spot where it finds itself lower than whatever the case may be? I'll tell you, Mike, it's a possibility. It's, it's, a, it's, mm. it's a possibility, and I think that Adrift, it, it played... And I mentioned this before in, in one of our most recent podcasts that um, when I did like I did like a mini binge of the first arc of of season two recently. It, right. When you were flying mm-hmm. to meet Braunberg in Japan. That's right. Uh, actually, I was on my way uh, to. Yeah, never mind. It's neither here nor there. I uh, didn't want don't want to spoil the bonus podcast. Uh, but I, I, I didn't mind it as much then because I was able to get to the next stuff faster. But watching it on the week to week and this being an episode that you have to stop down and examine for all of its parts and how much of it is really relitigating Man of Science, Man of Faith. And then how much of it that isn't relitigating Man of Science, Man of Faith is just Sawyer and Michael on a raft being mad at each other. It's hard, man. It's tough. It's a, it's a it's a tough episode. I think that some of the defenses that I'm going to have, um, you know, in a few months from now when we get to Stranger in a Strange Land, <laughs> which is what a lot of people say is the worst episode of Lost. I I want to be like I want to be preparing towards that because I I do have right. defenses of that episode, and I think a lot of those actually do carry here for a, a drift as well. I think a lot of the reasons why I'm I'm uh, more lax on Stranger in a Strange Land are some of the reasons why I tend to be a little bit forgiving towards Adrift. I think that there's some important Michael setup here. Um, I think that there are some uh, just like cinematic moments that are genuinely excellent. Uh, there's some funny scenes. Uh, but the but is the whole enterprise a little bit meandering? Is it misguided? I do think so. Uh, and, I, and I think that probably the, the first and earliest place that we, we can start about that, uh, talking about that, We'll we'll probably end up uh, bringing uh, an other or two into our conversation before we're even talking about the episode because there's a very notable behind the scenes story um, that I think explains why adrift itself is adrift. Right, and so let me also just say at the top here, you know, I don't want the blanket response here because we know that Michael's going to shoot through blankets and that's how Libby has a bad time. But I wouldn't say that I hate 
each and every element of this episode. Yeah. Uh, there are a couple things that I'm going to really lavish praise upon. I would say, actually, the entire last act of this episode, I really enjoy. From an acting perspective, from a cinematic perspective, from a suspense perspective, that doesn't make up for the other six-sevenths of the episode, but I can still appreciate it. So, spoiler alert, it's not going to get a 0.0 from me, but I think if you're looking at the track record that we've amassed thus far... Even other episodes like the aforementioned, whatever the case may be, even stuff like that, that twofer of the greater good and born to run that are a bit questionable in the post-Boon era of Lost, there are still nuggets in there that I think really resound thematically. And I think what this episode represents to me is, you know, if we looked at Man of Science, Man of Faith is some of the best stuff that Lost Season 2 can offer in terms of how much the paradigm shifts and the show really changes— this, quite honestly, might be a representation of the worst that Season 2 offers, specifically when it comes to, like you said, the relitigation process. And we'll get into this with the others, but I feel like especially so from So much litigation in this episode. Yeah. Oh, yes. Of, of you know, varying qualities, yes. but I feel like as we're going to get into the flashback especially, I think we're going to start to see the string show a little bit. And that's actually a good comparison to whatever the case may be, where I think we had very similar remarks about how this brought no new information to us. You could argue the same thing here, and I think that's why these two shows are going to kind of be neck and neck together, drifting on two pieces of wood on the same curve. All right, so before we get into talking about the episode, let's take a quick moment to thank our sponsors for this episode of Down the Hatch, and those are our friends over at CBS All Access with Tell Me a Story on CBS All Access. Everybody remembers their favorite fairy tale stories growing up. Mike, uh, which was yours? Was it the, the tale of the bullet and the shark? Uh, I would say that it was probably the tale of Shrek, played by Desmond, because <laughs> yes. that brings together all the fairy tales into one, Josh. Yes, you are a big Shrek guy. I know this to be true. Uh, but the new season of Kevin Williamson's Tell Me a Story, it takes the world's most well-known fairy tales and reimagines them as a dark and twisted psychological thriller. It's exploring an entirely new set of characters in this season that's currently on CBS All Access. It features three legendary stories, Beauty and the Beast, Sleeping Beauty, and Cinderella. That's what drew me to Tell Me a Story stream streaming now on CBS All Access exclusively. It stars the incredible Paul Wesley, who's best known for his role in The Vampire Diaries, opposite Ian Somerhalder, as as uh, uh, I think his name was... Uh, I don't know, it starts with a D, or a, is a Stefan. I don't remember the name of the character. Oh, Defon. Defon, Defon. Uh, Ian Somerhalder, late of Lost, not involved in Tell Me a Story. Tell Me a Story, in addition to Paul Wesley, has Carrie Ann Moss from The Matrix and Jessica Jones, Danielle Campbell from The Originals, uh, uh, also has Ika Darville, Matt Loria. It's got a really great cast, and it was shot on location in Nashville, which means there's original music woven into the stories that you're not going to want to miss. So sign up today for CBS All Access by going to cbs.com slash post, where you'll get your first week of CBS All Access for free. And then you can stream the new season of Tell Me a Story for free. That's cbs.com slash post to get that first week of CBS all access for free. With that being said, uh, Mike. By the way, yes. Ian Summeralder played Damon Damon's. Salvatore. Yeah, I was close. I was close. I was close. I, I, May, do you think maybe an allusion to his former show? Uh, could be. Could be. Could be. Uh, I think uh, you'd have to tip the cap to the person who wrote the Vampire Diaries book, who I, I don't know how much of a lostophile. Uh, that's for our, uh, our, our down, the, down the Hatch with Count Jacula recap that we eventually do 
the Count Jacula, yes. the Count Jacula exposed party. Uh, we will do at some point. We'll get in. Get ready for my Vampire Dies <laughs> review podcast. Twice bitten. Yeah, twice bitten. <laughs> That's good. Oh man. All right. Let's go forth into the jungle, or I guess out into the ocean, uh, and into a cement bunker uh, down in the earth, as it were, as we discuss Adrift, which is directed by Stephen Williams, a great director who's directed a ton of Lost and and several other shows, uh, co-written by Stephen Maida and Leonard Dick. It originally aired on September 28th, 2005, and it centers on Michael Dawson. Michael gets the flashback here, second flashback of season two, but Mike Bloom, that wasn't always part of the plan. Mm-hmm. No. Exactly. There was a there was a replacement that Michael approached with a snowman based question. <laughs> Are you him? Uh, yes. Uh, this this may be something that you already know. Maybe it's not, depending on what your uh, level of lost fandom is. Uh, but this was certainly something that was on my radar, and the great Ben behind the curtain collected some information for us about this as well. Which is adrift was not a Michael flashback originally. It was originally supposed to be a Sawyer flashback, and it was supposed to be a Sawyer flashback that explores the quote-unquote Tampa job, which was first mentioned Mm. in Outlaws by uh, the Robert Patrick character. Yes. Uh, So, you know, we we had had this sort of like spaghetti incident mentioned, and I guess it was going to show one of Sawyer's previous con jobs that he had botched, and... You know, I think in retrospect, and we can go into a little bit of, of, you know, there were some details. Apparently, Jolene uh, Blalock from Star Trek Enterprise was supposed to be one of the marks that Sawyer ends up falling in love with. I do feel like, you know, there's there are some photos that leaked from the set as well. I do, yeah, yeah, and and I think some pieces sort of got lifted and placed into the long con, which we'll get into in a little bit. So I don't think it exactly disappeared completely. I will say at the outset, just from a completely you know move based perspective. I think this makes sense. I think if Sawyer, if this had been Sawyer's flashback, it would have been the greater good part two, uh, where we would say, okay, Michael's the one who's directly feeling the trauma of what happened. Why are we concentrating on the person who's directly next to him right now? And so I will say, even if I'm not a big fan of the flashbacks across Adrift on the whole, I like their intention because I think the first good decision that they made in this episode was saying, and, and granted, it seemed like the decision was more so about quality of the flashback than it was actual character focus. But from that perspective, they sort of stumbled into the right decision of who to base this around. Yeah, but a little late in the game. Uh, and Carlton Cuse has said this. This is a quote from Carlton Cuse. Uh, it was the only time we dumped an entire storyline. No fault of the actors. It just wasn't properly conceived. We have no plans to put it on the DVDs because unlike most deleted scenes, it, which just don't fit into the body of a particular show, this storyline was not at the quality bar that we have for the show. So they were filming um, the Tampa job stuff. They were filming the Jolene Blaylock scene. They were filming the Sawyer flashback. It was clearly not working. They they called an audible, uh, and I, I think you're right. They make the right choice that it's Michael who should have the flashback here. He's the person who just lost his son. He's the person who's feeling it the, the most. But pretty clearly, also, they have filmed... I, I don't know if this is true, but I would guess that this is true, that they have filmed the vast majority of the Michael and Sawyer on the raft segments of Adrift by the time they've made these decisions. Because I think by the way that that stuff plays, you can really clearly tell that we're supposed to be focusing on Sawyer. Like the way that it's constructed, the way the scenes are put together, that it feels very... Something just feels 
off about this episode. So that's the biggest issue with Adrift um, versus, say, whatever the case may be, which we've also discussed how there are some um, mitigating circumstances behind whatever the case may be, i.e. Mm. Damon Lindelof uh, not so quietly losing a bit of his sanity in the, in the <laughs> process of Lost finding so much success. And this is around the time Carlton Cuse comes on board with the show. So if things are experiencing some level of growing pains, Totally fine, totally explainable at that point. It's not going to be the best episode of the show. Here we are in another transition point early on in season two, where I think that they they once again feel like this isn't working. Let's pivot. I think if you're talking about Adrift as one of the worst episodes of Lost, my feeling, Mike, is um, the creators themselves probably wouldn't quibble with that case too much. I think that they'd probably be like, yeah, like we we caught that something was wrong. Uh, we did the best we could with it with the time in which we caught it because we caught it really late. Uh, and this is just not one of our finest hours. Right. And I, I would even step away from the flashbacks in my criticism, though, as well. But I think it also goes back to, like you said, there's there's a pivot away from just the, the last minute decision to squash the Sawyer flashback. But also this episode, they're making a lot of really interesting creative choices. I mean, I would call the stuff on the raft basically a de facto bottle episode. Yeah. Where it's just Michael and Sawyer. We have That's not why had I say that. Walting for Godot. You know, it really does yeah. in a lot of ways feels like a two-hander with a very toothy fin along for the for the ride. Um, but right. it, it so, is like so two we, people so just like on on a sound stage filled with water uh, performing a stage play. It's just that the stage play happens to not be compelling at all. Right, and so we have that, which again is very unique, especially to a, an a, an ensemble-based show like Lost, where you often have three-handers, four-handers, maybe even just big group scenes. And then the B-plot is down the hatch, but for the first time ever, Josh, we were talking about, you know, on-island flashbacks. I guess this sort of counts at one. It's not going to be, you know, the timpanies bringing us into it, but essentially it's us rewinding from the events from the last half of Man of Science, Man of Faith, and seeing it from another perspective, right. which we've never seen before. So there's a lot of experimentation going on here, which... Let me also say that from like a, a content absorption perspective, I feel like there's a difference between appreciating decisions and liking decisions. Sure, sure. And what I can say about Adrift is I appreciate those swings that they made, especially now that their feet are you know out from under them. They feel like they can make some choices to change up the storytelling and keep things fresh. That's what the hatch really introduced. But that being said, I feel like they didn't realize they were standing on flimsy bamboo. Uh, and I think what Adrift does <laughs> yeah. is when they take these risks, they start to see things start to jettison off and the plot quite literally gets lost in this episode. Yeah, I, I think that that's right. And I, I think, yeah, I think it's it's very it's very reductive to say there was a problem with the flashback and they had to reshoot it. And that's the problem with the drift. And that's why it feels off. Um, that's certainly an issue. Um, but there is also just the fact that the story they concocted for uh, how Michael and Sawyer deal with the immediate aftermath of the of the raft exploding it's very repetitive. You know, it's like ping-ponging back and forth between these two guys being very angry at each other and then sometimes very supportive of each other. And it's often with that, like, extraordinary rationale. Uh, it just feels a little lazy in in the writing. It really does feel like an episode that's treading water. It really does, in, mm. in a lot of ways, feel like an episode that's biding its time until we can get to the to the orientation video and the Dharma Initiative uh, reveals in, in episode three. Um, but I I think, Mike, one of the things that's going to um, put this, for me, ultimately past whatever the case may be, 
is I do think that there are a select number of scenes in this episode that are almost exceptional. Um, and I don't think that I've got anything like that in whatever the case may be, where I think Adrift is like, Oh, Josh, I have forsaken your membership in the Saeed Shannon ship club. Well, I, I mean, I, th- there's some fun stuff with, with Saeed and, and Shannon, but I, I think that there's like the, the scene where Kate wakes up in the pantry is an exceptional scene in Lost. Uh, I think it is. I think it is an outstanding scene, and I'm really excited to get there. I think that the the scene where, as you mentioned, like the the final stretch of the episode, really, um, you know, from the final flashback to the end, I think is really, really, really great. And that ending in uh, Adrift uh, with Jin, which we'll get to in a bit, is iconic. I think. I think you think of that, and like when you, when you think of the word "others" in association with "lost," I think your mind often does like spit that back out in the way that Jin is shouting it at the end of this episode. So there's there's at least one truly iconic moment in Adrift, and I don't think that there's anything like that, whatever the case may be. So we'll we'll present our cases when we get later on down the line. My instinct is that I'm gonna I'm gonna give this a higher score than whatever the case may be, but barely. But barely, but barely. And I say that, uh, and, and I think as an episode, I think whatever the case may be is probably more whole than adrift. Uh, but I think that just because there's a few iconic moments here that I, that I like as much as I do, I think it'll just, it'll, it'll slightly edge out whatever the case may be. Well, let's get into it because I'm very intrigued to, uh, to hear those end thoughts. But we have to get through an entire episode we first, do. Josh. We do have to get through an entire episode first. And I don't know how long it'll take us. You know, This may be one of our shorter ones. Knock on wood. Uh, but let's start with, uh, as we often do here, a series Bible entry for Down the Hatch uh, to add to the pile concocted by the Ben behind the curtain. Let's see if you can figure out who we're talking about here this week as I read this entry. Incredibly rich, but also definitely made... From chocolate, the Apollo bar was once upon a time synonymous with the San Francisco chocolate scene. Following the investment of Alvar Hanzo in the 1970s, the Apollo bar became a bona fide global brand. Not the broken. Uh, There have been reports of the Dharma Initiative conducting secretive tests on Apollo bars, perhaps with the intent of discovering whether any mind control applications arise out of the bar's irresistibility. Uh, Note that we see huge potential for a merchandising opportunity and have made early inquiries with known influencers, including Jimmy Fallon, but we have contacted him with no response currently. He's too busy pursuing his film career, perhaps Jimmy Kimmel Mm. instead. Yeah, listen, Fever Pitch can't make itself, Josh. No. Uh, I feel like in another world, maybe, have we gotten that brand deal, we could have gotten Alvar Hanso in the Apollo factory. Mm, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> I think that that... I think we could make... You know what? <laughs> Let's put Lost 2 on the back burner. This is the reboot that needs to be made Yeah, right I think the Apollo bar uh, needs to be brought into reality. We'll have more to say about the Apollo bar, but uh, an, an instrumental part of my favorite scene of this episode... For sure, I'm kind of surprised Ben didn't go with uh, with the uh, the shark as his entry this week. Yeah, because nobody likes the shark, Josh. <laughs> nobody likes the shark. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, so we started this podcast uh, by screaming Walt because it's how the episode itself begins and because the lindelof winner talked about that as yes well. indeed uh and if you don't believe me uh let's just start summarizing a drift and we do that with the assistance of eight sounds and let's just fire off the first sound which is the first sound of the episode 
wondering josh and mike hey what are the visuals going on in this scene and we wish we could tell you because josh (laughs) it's a very very dark scene i will say my reception of this initially was that it was very dark overall and made you know the long night look like a, a warm summer's day i will say watching it back they do a much better job with lighting than I remember, but this is definitely one of those scenes I had to re-watch, rewind and rewatch a couple times just because there's so many quick cuts and so much darkness going on that I had trouble finding out what was happening. So I mean, but my my bigger issue is is less that I I actually don't have the big darkness issue uh, with this episode. I feel like I've always been able to see things. Wow, first world TV problems, I know. From Josh. I, I feel like I've always been able to see this one fairly clearly. My bigger issue is. Uh, it just how how circular the episode is, and just how how many times the same thing happens over and over again. So so here's here's Sawyer who miraculously, uh, after being shot, is like popping right out of the out of the water, even though Jin is absolutely nowhere to be found. Uh, yeah, I mean, does Jin just that bad of a? Did Jin need his own prescription glasses like Sawyer does? If he missed him after he clearly dove in with him at the end of Exodus? No, I think maybe what we misinterpreted Jin at the end of Exodus, and I think maybe his instinct was like, oh shit, they're shooting at us i gotta get out of here i'm gonna go swim back to the island because i'm an expert swimmer uh and it's gonna take me like three minutes to get there uh or hear me out mermaids mermaids <laughs> he rode on the backs of mermaids to get back to the island i'm personally mike uh very impressed with with the fact that Jin is completely absent from this episode uh i think the fact that he is able to just swim back to the island uh, is a is a strength not a weakness um but you know sawyer's gonna be bobbing around he was shot in the shoulder so we're instantly being shown what happened to sawyer and i think as you're like trying to like pick apart what are the biggest aspects of the cliffhanger of the raft blowing up in exodus um, we we know that Walt has been captured. We know that the raft is destroyed. We cannot account for Jin because uh, he dives in after Sawyer. Sawyer is literally shot, and we can't account for Sawyer. And he's been a very important character thus far. So I think that he's a really big element that we're that we're worried about. But Michael, we last saw screaming for Walt, so we at least knew he was alive. Um, but the fact that this is a Michael flashback episode that we begin with Sawyer popping out of the water, right. and you hear Michael, but you're not seeing him. Uh, and that the first scene of the episode focuses on Sawyer trying to resuscitate Michael. Uh, it's, I think it's just it's very emblematic of sort of like the, the discombobulated nature of this episode. Especially because I think overall, I think what Harold Perrineau does in this episode is pretty damn remarkable. He's a, good, he's a great actually, actor. They both are. They're both very good in this episode in terms of their performance. Right, but it starts in this scene, though, because, I mean, say what you want to about the the Meisner technique of Michael just saying Walt over and over again, but I feel like he does a great vocal performance in really, like, 
obviously we pick right where things left off. In fact, we hear the exact same sounds of, you know, Malcolm David Kelly screaming and, you know, uh, Harold Perrineau's, whoa, halt. But then as he keeps yelling, you hear his voice get like fainter and weaker. And I think it's both a physical resignation and almost an emotional resignation that this is actually happening and your son is getting taken. And I feel like, unfortunately, that gets overshadowed quite literally by all the action going on, you know, of, of Sawyer having to haul him onto the raft, which I will say, Sawyer doing all this stuff while essentially having one shoulder out of commission is admirable as hell. He must have so much adrenaline running through him at his point to be able to do that, but, like, good on him. Yes, he does attempt to do the Jack-esque CPR. Yeah, he's, like, punching him very in the quick- chest, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that realizes very quickly that that's not medically sound, but I, I to your point, like, I think the emotional you know, aftermath of what Michael's experiencing to me is so much more fascinating than Sawyer having to swim over and pull him onto the raft. And I wish that we had more focus on that. And to your point, less about, okay, how is Sawyer going to help save the day? Right. Um, but to speak to that circular nature is like, so, so what you just heard is the first scene of the episode. The second scene of the episode, because the B plot of the episode is what's going on down the hatch from Locke's point of view. Um, we get John Locke, uh, seeing Kate disappear or seeing the light turn off from when Kate disappeared in Man of Science, Man of Faith. He screams for her. She does not respond. He goes and grabs the cable and he plummets down the hatch and the music amps up and then we get the and you get Which the I'm, lost title. I, I question that choice uh, personally. Like, I don't know why we couldn't have ended Act 1 with you know, my, Sawyer trying to resuscitate Mike. Because, I know because that, things are discombobulated and because very clearly this episode is treading water. That's that's the answer, right. because this episode is not good. <laughs> this is, yeah, well, that, the that, that's the thing. Yeah. It feels like, you know, again, there's some interesting things from the Hatch stuff that I'm sure we're going to get into, but it really does feel like it, like, non-thematically got shoehorned into this episode. When they were trying to pick out moments to pepper this stuff in, they're probably like, uh, people are tired of Michael and Sawyer on the raft. Let, let's, you know, put another scene down in the hatch because that's exciting. But I feel like from an emotional perspective, you could probably put the credits in right after Sawyer hauls Michael on there because right? it's a big climactic moment. This is the immediate aftermath of like their lives being on the line. And oh, maybe Michael's actually, you know, he's gone under. Maybe he's not going to be alive. I feel like that's a more that's a better point to end things with your first act than, OK, Yes, Locke's going down. Independent Locke's going to independent Locke. He's not telling anyone he's going down the hatch, but he's going in after Kate. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fine. And, and you know, there's great scenes that come out of it. But I, I think it really does show you that they're just like, shit, we got to get an episode of Lost out. Like, I, I think that there's like at a certain point, it's like, let's cut our losses and we just have to make the episode because we have to put an episode on TV. Um, right. And, and, and that's tough. You know, again, whatever the case may be, had an unfortunate placing in that it was the first episode of 2005 after this big month long yep. break after this huge episode. I mean, you could also say like, OK, it's halfway through the season. Maybe they're sort of still finding their legs. This is the second episode of the season. You know, you really, you came out with a bang in Man of Science and Man of Faith, and you want to keep the momentum going. And I think just unfortunately, due to a lot of circumstances, it stopped yeah, short. Now, again, yeah. there's still things that we like, yep. but I think like what was talked about last week, I think when it comes from a timing perspective, when you're talking about that sandwich of Man of Science, Man of Faith, Adrift, and Orientation, the meat in the middle oh, of the sandwich the, pales. It's spoiled. It's spoiled. It's yeah. like you got like spoiled bologna in the in the middle of like an artisanal baked bread bun. Uh, it's exactly. Like you got like the this the the genuine San Francisco sourdough surrounding this moldy meat. Uh, it's just <laughs> it's like a shark sandwich that no one wants. 
Yeah, exactly. Throw it to the sharks. They'll take it Shouldn't. in. Or maybe they won't. I don't know. We don't We're know what, whether or not being sharks want human. We're being hard on it. But I mean, so, th- so that's those are the first two scenes of the episode. Locke screaming for Kate goes down the hatch. The music amps up. We get, you know, smashed to the, to the credits. And it's like, all right, well, we already know that that's going to end with him uh, at gunpoint. So uh, there's a little bit of... Uh, I guess we're we're kind of like okay, so how is that all going to happen? That's the journey that we're going to go on with him. Um, but when we come back, what we get, as you mentioned, is like really we we get the continuation of what should have just happened at the at the end of the first scene of the episode. Uh, this is where Sawyer effectively brings Michael back. Uh, he decides like yeah, pounding Michael's chest. I I heard Jack did that to Charlie and it worked. So if Jack can do it, why can't I? Uh, Sawyer just like pounds on Michael's chest until he 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 burps back to life yes i said burp not burst uh and michael just starts asking like where's walt where is he where's my son Walt!" i, I would like to see harold perineau pull off a walt burp I, I think that that would be good too uh but i i don't know like i i think that like this would have this would have worked really well as the um the full first scene going into the episode rather than dividing this scene much like how man of science man of faith and orientation surround a drift and that feels like a bad call ultimately um the fact that this michael sawyer scene is surrounding Locke going down into the hatch doesn't feel great either um yeah and there and there's a really again great acting moment where michael wakes up and he his immediate instinct is to go crawling off the raft. right right he still is back in panic mode Walt, 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 and you see Sawyer actually like have to legitimate like full Nelson wrestling hold him back, right. and you can see Michael get weaker. And you know it's it's an interesting moment, like you said. There's a lot of ebbs and flows to these two. It's much like the current of that of the water that's currently supporting them right now. There's a lot of moments where they come together and break apart, and this is a moment where I think Sawyer is legitimately supporting Michael both physically and mentally. So I th- I think it's an interesting character moment from michael especially because again as he wakes up his immediate first instinct is not okay i'm on this piece of driftwood now what do i do it's i have to keep going after my son even if it almost caused me drowning so from there we go to our first flashback of the episode and it is the the scrambled together uh michael flashback that we're getting here stefan johnson had asked us mike how do we think this episode plays differently if it's a sawyer flashback in your mind um what do you imagine comes here if uh, if this scene is a Sawyer flashback rather than going with Michael to his lawyer's office. I actually could imagine it being a bit like Homecoming where like maybe Sawyer and maybe Robert Patrick are talking about like planning out what the Tampa job is. And then maybe we end with, uh, you know, T-Pole from Star Trek Enterprise being introduced who is, to Sawyer. Who is T-Pole, by the way? I never watched uh, I believe I believe she's a... I actually have not watched that much either. Oh, wow. I pretty much stop whenever I hear that credit sequence because it is... Is it bad? It's... It's no you all everybody's. Uh, I'll, I'll put it <laughs> oh, at that. Oh, so that must think, be pretty good. Uh, but I think that, you know, they... Uh, what I will say is, again, I think this was the right idea to go to Michael. I think, unfortunately, what these Michael flashbacks do is not provide any new information. And, I mean, compare that to... So this is our second Michael flashback, right? Look at our four Jack flashback episodes. I feel like we got such distinct, different shades of Jack in each one of those flashbacks that told us fundamentally who he is as a character. It sucks that this is the second time we get Michael and it felt like we were just going over the same bullet points that we got from special, which is, you know, Susan's not allowing Michael to visit his son. He wants his son. He's not going to get his right, son. Right. And, and I feel like that's sort of like the main sticking point of these scenes is yes, 
we're going to need a Michaels out of the hospital now. It seems like it's post-accident. And when Susan wheeled him around and told him, hey, I'm going to take Walt with me, it seems like now Michael's pursuing legal action, even though she told him that's not a good idea back in special. But like you sort of talked about with, with Locke, knowing the outcome that we're going to eventually get to, there's not much new information that comes about. And that's not going to make a horrible flashback episode, but compared to what we're used to, it's a little paltry. Right. I mean, I, th- I think you can understand why this flashback, and, and th- this is the argument that I'll make for it, is we really need to establish what Michael just lost uh, and, and what Michael is fighting for this season and, and what Michael has on the line. His son has just been taken from him. So this flashback shows that fight that he's been on before. When the odds were against him, what did he do to go after Walt? And what were the choices that he ultimately made as a father because he loved his son as much as he did um, you know, we'll 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 debate the 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 decision he makes. I'm sure ultimately to some degree, um, but there's no question of how much he loves his son, and that is what this episode is trying to establish, so that you really really feel for him in the present as he's about to embark on a journey where he will do quite literally just about anything to save Walt, including murder innocent people. Uh, so this episode gets you on that journey. Um, does it do it in a in a great way? No, but like, is that what it's going for? I think yes. Um, in that in yeah. that way, like you can you can understand its purpose. Um, that doesn't mean you have to love the way that it's implemented. I can certainly understand its purpose. I mean, I did, I'm not going to do a little bit of a you know backseat Dharma van driving when it comes to writing this episode. I do have an alternate flashback that I personally wrote up that maybe I can pitch you on later to get your thoughts because I think I mean, like you said, it, it's sort of again going back to like the the B plot of this episode. That this the time frame that this particularly takes place in is sort of a time frame that we're already aware of, right. that we're already working within, and you know there's still new stuff that comes about it. But I wonder if there were other situations where you could take the Michael character, put him in almost a new situation, sort of like what happens with Locke, where Locke goes on all these really crazy adventures around the world. And we still learn a lot about him, but we're not exactly putting him in the same environment over and over again. So this scene just, you know, we'll go through it fast, is Michael's meeting with his lawyer. His lawyer doesn't even know his name. He calls him Mr. Dalton instead of Mr. Dawson. Yes. And uh, the lawyer, apparently his name is Clerk Finney. Is that right? And he's played played by an actor by Saul Rubinek, which let's make another Star Trek connection, Josh, second week in a row. Uh, There was a TNG episode called The Most Toys. I don't know if you remember this one, where Data got kidnapped and essentially was like, uh, put on display in this rich guy's museum who collects a bunch of weird things from around the universe. And Saul Rubinek played that guy. Wow. So he's good at playing like really seedy types. He's the collector. He's the collector. Well, this is the only lawyer that Michael can afford. Better call Saul, I guess, uh, is who he has oh, called. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and this guy is even like, look, you called me. Uh, and if I'm the best you can afford, like even even me at my rates... Uh, like, and my rates are the rates that don't get you name recognition. Uh, like, you're gonna lose a lot of money. This is gonna be very expensive. This is David versus Goliath. Uh, yeah, if only he had the injunction nullifier. Yeah, he used it. What's your slingshot? Uh, so he says, You sure you want to do this? And Michael's like, They're not taking away my son. Uh, and then cut to the present where they've taken away his son. I would love, you know, we're going to have some medical input from last week's episode that we asked for that I really appreciate. I would love a lawyer's perspective because I'm very intrigued by this backstory that apparently 
Michael has to relinquish his right as a father, as Walt's father, so Brian can legally adopt him. Right. Maybe again, I, I've again, I've everything I've learned in life, I've learned through TV, which is probably a poor life decision. But I can't remember any other situations where like someone gets adopted and it's like, okay, we can adopt you, but first we have to go to your blood father and have them legally declare that they are no longer your child. I have no idea it, how it works. I've, I, yeah, I, I have no idea works. how it works. Like. On on the surface, it seems like just a hoop to jump through. But I mean, knowing the legal world, I wouldn't be surprised if that actually is a hoop they have to jump. I through. have absolutely no idea. Uh, there are no hoops to jump through uh, on uh, the raft or what's left of the raft back in the present. Uh, and while he's not jumping, uh, Michael is certainly screaming. He's still screaming for Walt as he is going to do through much of this episode and indeed through much of the rest of his time in the season. And I pulled this sound as our second sound, uh, Mike Bloom, because uh, Michael's going to explain why he's screaming to, for Walt. So I feel like uh, let's just get it in his words so we can, we can refer back to, to why he is doing this. Walt! Walt! <coughs> <coughs> Walt! Mike! You should save your energy. They took my son! Yeah, I saw that. Onto a boat, which means he's not in shouting distance. You don't know that. Well, I got a pretty good sense. And even if he was, there's nothing you can do. Look, if he can hear me, he knows that I'm alive. That I'm coming for him. That I'm going to get him back. Right now, all I got is that maybe my son can hear me. Does that make any sense to you? Yeah. I like I, okay. I like when Sawyer tells him there's nothing you can do because yeah. I feel like that's almost like that's like locks don't tell me what I can't do type of thing where it almost compares to that David versus Goliath situation where Michael has sort of been living this life where people tell you there's nothing you can do you know Mr. Dawson you're too blank you're too poor uh, you know you're too manic like you can't do these things. And that's a situation that Michael has faced constantly that I think it almost goes in one ear and out one other waterlogged ear at this point. Where, like, he doesn't even blanch to this idea that Sawyer's saying, yeah, there's no reason how, how he could hear you shouting in the middle of this uh, because we're on a boat in the middle of nowhere. And, or we're on a raft in the middle of nowhere and the boat's probably long gone by now. Michael doesn't care at this point. He is so focused on his mission and he's heard those words so many times beforehand that he's going to keep manning slingshots whether or not he hits a goliath yeah uh so that's why he's doing it because he figures if he is shouting from the rooftops uh for his son or the raft top is this the top of the raft that he's on i don't know i guess do we call it like uh is he ca- a cat on a cat on a <laughs> bam- bamboo raft hot, hot bamboo raft yeah uh that's gonna be why he's like gonna scream for him at the waterfalls listen it's not really great for stealth uh, I would say is screaming for Walt, as you're going to discover uh, when you get captured by the others later on. Um, but uh, that's that's the argument, um, and I think we give a lot of grief to to the line and like the constant railing of Walt, Walt. That's going to go on throughout the season. But Harold Perrineau does some great scream acting, I have to say. Yeah, yeah. Listen, I know that we've sort of created our Mount Rushmore of of scractors, but I feel like Michael might be like a good. Uh, substitute, I would say. I can't remember if he actually makes the mountain, but he's at least, like, in contention. He's in you contention. Know? He's in contention. All right, down the hatch. Uh, while Michael is on the raft screaming for Walt, Locke is down the hatch calling for Kate. 
And then he decides, like, as he digs deeper in, he's like, oh, this seems like a very strange place. Uh, why don't I take off my shoes? This seems like the right, right thing Right, you, you gotta curl your toes on the carpet, right, to really get used to it. That's what the guy on Oceanic 815 told Locke before they touched down. So he takes off his shoes, I guess for stealth, right? Like, uh... He needs but they're called sneakers, Josh. Shouldn't they be good for sneaking? <laughs> I think he takes his shoes off because his shoes were off earlier in uh, last week's episode. Uh, and there were sho- mysterious shoes that, that <laughs> What's a, Do you think a crew member left their shoes yeah, behind? Like, like, oh, oh crap, shit. whose shoes are those? Yeah, Drift is just like a production disaster where they're like, oh, God, <laughs> we got to explain the shoes. No, there's too. all this continuity. Uh-huh. No, there's a large continuity one that I'll get to later that I think they missed out on by uh, obsessing over the shoes of it oh, all. Yeah, so this is the first time we're really going to see the Swan Station logo in, like, really clear focus. Locke is going to be Which, walking along. Which I, it took me a long time to understand that that was this one. Maybe again, it's due to my poor TV reception at the time, but I always thought it was like the Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> I mean, it would make sense that Locke is staring at the Loch Ness Monster, I suppose. I, yeah, I guess he, that would sort of be like, maybe then he time, he travels back in time, decides to name it, like, don't name it the Swan. Name it the Loch Ness name Monster. Name it the Loch Ness Monster. Uh, but yes, that's the idea is this is the Swan Station and we're seeing it for the very first time. That's exciting, Mike, as we're like kind of being a little bit negative on a drift. Like here it is, this Swan Station. No, I, do, I, I do like that. Again, I think I question whether or not these scenes were necessary, especially in this episode. But I do like that it allows us to see more of the station because, I mean, when we saw Jack Silent Hill his way through there last time, we did get ominous shots of things like, the mural and the magnetic wall, but I think we get to see a bit more of the slice of life stuff, the creature comforts that we saw in the opening of last week. So I do like getting that tour because, like we mentioned, it's going to be our basic place of residence for a long, long time right. now. So I appreciate the fact that at least it's sort of setting, building it out as a location and that lock, we get to see it through his eyes of him getting to sort of skulk around and explore the area and really get you know his own reaction as to what the hell this place is and he's gonna be he's gonna be poking around and eventually he's gonna hear some groaning from around the corner uh after he's like poked at the the breakfast nook and he sees the artificial light uh and he's gonna see kate's in the corner and he's gonna go to check on kate and then he's no and nobody puts katie nobody puts katie in a corner he's gonna show up to kate uh, and then he's gonna get the he's gonna get Desmond from around the corner with the gun uh, in Locke's face, and this is when he's gonna say, "Are you him?" Uh, and this is and that's where we cut from there. And so when we when we cut when we're eventually gonna come back to the Locke and Desmond and Kate stuff, we're just gonna get like the full continuation of this scene. So it does just like feel like such a disjointed episode where it feels like we should like just be continuing that conversation <laughs> instead of jumping back to the raft. It's it's a lot of weird places to cut, but I do really like from a cinematography perspective the shot of Desmond putting the gun framed in the background by the wall with the hash marks along it. Right. Because we'll we'll obviously get a further focus of that as we're walking through, but I really like this image of Desmond being sort of manic. Right. And that's our image of him at this point, right? He's like, yes, he didn't meet Jack when he was running his tour to Stodd, but like this seems like some sort of shut-in who's pointing a gun in our hero's faces. And to have that wall behind him, you could make so many assumptions as to how long he's been down here and what might have driven him crazy as a result. All right, so let's go back to the raft. Uh, and after Sawyer has been uh, scream-shaming Michael, now Sawyer himself is shouting, shouting for Jin. And this is just like the beginning of the bickering between Michael and Sawyer that... 
I mean, I think the truth is, Mike, that the right answer to like, I know we're armchair quarterbacking loss. Isn't that kind of what you do as a podcaster, though? Uh, it's like I th- I'm surprised either one of us are doing any quarterback considering our affinity for sports. <laughs> I think like the move here was to was to get just like maybe they just washed up on shore and we just like go immediately into the tailies thing and like maybe make the other stuff a little more scary. Uh, because otherwise, what you get here is you just get a full episode of Michael and Sawyer shouting at each other about all these things that feel fairly mundane uh, and how how. Uh, Michael's like, it's your fault. You fired the, you made me fire the flare gun. So I was like, it's my fault. It's he waltz out there wrapped up in a blanket with a cup of cocoa. And Michael's like, get off my raft. Uh, yeah, which, which is, it's so this is interesting from so many perspectives because I, I don't know. I, I wish this had connected more back to the end of Exodus. I mean, let's remember that scene that Michael was accusing Sawyer of doing, which was fire the gun. Because I think, didn't Michael say like, what are you going to do? Shoot me? And that's like a pretty tense moment between the two of them who had sort of built their own uh, raft together, as it were, before it broke apart in that moment. And so you could imagine like this is a continuation of that moment, almost like flashing back to that. But I guess from a character based perspective, do we feel this fury is founded? Right. You know, considering what Michael is recovering from at this moment, is he in the anger stage of grieving right now? And that's why he's taking it out on Sawyer, because if, if that's the case... While it's not exactly fun to watch, I could understand sure. it. I also feel I also feel like from a word choice perspective, Michael telling Sawyer, get off my raft is interesting in that Michael is still taking propriety over the raft. Maybe if we're talking about the stages of grief, he's still in denial about the raft itself, considering that this this is not a raft, dude. This is some bamboo tied together. Uh, and I think the, the fact that he's still insisting ownership of it might allude to the fact that, like, this was still something that he associates with and that he still sort of clings on hope to. Uh, there's not much of a raft anymore, and what little they are indeed on is in danger because here, here it comes. It's the shark! And there's a bump, and there's a bump on the raft, and they're like, oh my god, there's a shark here. We're in trouble, there's a shark! Uh, yeah. I mean, that's okay. it. That's all you got. <laughs> what? This is just. Why did they do this? <laughs> like, I just think this was probably the most ham-handed decision of the episode, in my opinion. I think if you're trying to present a shark as a legitimate threat, all right, Josh. Let, let's let's armchair quarterback here. Let me pitch something to you right now of how we could present the Dharma shark as a legitimate threat instead of some fishy that's swimming around there and scaring these two men half to death. Let's say, the end of Exodus, Sawyer does get shot in the shoulder, but he gets a shot off, and he shoots one of the others. And so you have Michael, and you have Sawyer, and you have one of the others in the water. And so, like, maybe they're debating, okay, do we take this guy on? Like, how, how do we appeal to the humanity? Can we pry him for information? And then we see this guy get swallowed alive by this shark in the water. Because <laughs> I feel like the unfortunate thing about this shark is that the, it's literally no threat to it. Yeah. It seems like the shark has basically no interest in these two guys whatsoever, which granted, I think is probably a bit realistic as to sharks' interest in humans in general. But I, I think it just really flounders, pun unintended, on trying was to make it, this... A, was it unintended? A, never is unintended, yeah. we know that. Yeah. But I, I think that... 
one of the failures of this episode is that it really tries to build up this big threat. I feel like compared to something like the polar bear or the monster or the others, it just really doesn't work for me. Yeah, sure. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely agreed. Uh, what does work for me, though, is uh, on, on two levels. One, uh, I, I remember this episode, uh, watching this the first time, and I'm sure this is the experience of many people who were watching this episode the first time as well, is you see the shark swim by on screen, and you pause down, and you can see a Dharma logo on the shark. Uh, and certainly after like the Dharma Initiative reveal in episode three of this season um, coming next week for us, uh, you would go back and you rewatched everything for any clues that you could find. And you saw that on the shark lo- on the shark tail and you're like, oh, my God, this is crazy. So like there was still like sort of just like this guttural primal attachment to everything that was now revealed to be touched by the Dharma Initiative that I, I have fond memories of it for that. And I also have fond memories of it because of the, the lost podcasting that Damon Lindelof and Carlton Cuse yes. did. And I'm, I'm blanking on the exact right name. I think it's Ezra J- Et- James Sharkington. Is that right? You are correct. Ezra James Sharkington is canon, uh, according to Damon and Carlton. So that's great. You know, uh, I was I was tempted to give an MVP point to Ezra James Sharkington. Oh, I this thought you were going to give it an LVP point because I'm pretty sure it gets shot and killed. Well, then, and then that's what I was thinking next. But then, like, maybe they just shot it and it got sad and it swam away. And it was, <laughs> it was like, I don't want to be involved wanted some anymore. Friends. Yeah, so, like, uh, maybe that's that's what's going on here. So maybe we're just being harsh. And so I decided that I'll just keep it uh, uh, untethered from my MVP LVPs no matter what. Um, but either way, it, this is like what my friend was talking about with Exodus with the Rudder. Uh, and we've talked about this already uh, in, in, in recent weeks. Uh, is like this is just sort of like that artificial drama that's just there because you got to have something exciting in your episode. You need an action scene. Uh, this is one of the worst examples of it on Lost. Uh, is it a little funny? Yeah. Does it put a smile on my face? It does because uh, it's ridiculous. Uh, but is there any world in which you can like really justify it as like a, a, like an actual good thing? It's funny, Mike. Uh, these Mike uh, Dawson flashback episodes so far, uh, two for two with these uh, ridiculous animal encounters. Yeah, maybe Michael is actually like a Dr. Doolittle type of person. We didn't even realize that. Maybe he should have been in the new version instead of Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, that could be. Uh, that could be the case. Be the <laughs> Thank case. you for entertaining yeah. that ridiculous I notion. That, Thank you. I think that's possible. I think there's a possibility. Yes, I, I think one of the other unfortunate things is, you know, I think if we compare it to something like the Walt whispering last week of like something that was put out there into the Lost Universe and doesn't exactly get answered, I think the thing that the Walt whispers provide is at least like some atmosphere and some tone to it. I think the fact that the shark a does not really get mentioned or referenced again, granted we don't spend many time out on the open sea except on the freighter. So it's not like we're really taking advantage of that, but also the fact that it doesn't really terrify in many regards. You know, I do like, I don't know if this is an inadvertent or not, but obviously, you know, the first kill in the jaws franchise is done during night swimming. And so I think if you're good, if you're going to introduce a shark, it's a fun time to do it. I just don't think it's very well done. And the fact that it has really no bearing on the show whatsoever is almost like, I don't know, a d- double indemnity to me. Yeah, I think so. Um, so they're like, oh, God, it's a shark. It's a shark. All right, I'm going to shoot the I'm going to shoot the shark is uh, what it seems like Sawyer is planning because uh, he's got the gun uh, or as uh, Michael calls it, your best friend. Uh, yeah, do you think he's jealous? Yeah, I think maybe. He's like, I see you, you managed talk- to hang on to your best friend there. I see you have the friendship bracelet around <laughs> your gun, and you didn't give me one. I I was a little confused here, Josh. This is unfortunately where the lack of light sort of got me fumbling a bit. So 
he's so basically michael's telling sawyer like the gun was underwater it's waterlogged it's not going to work sawyer takes out the bullets to check to make sure that the powder is dry when the shark bumped the raft i thought sawyer dropped the gun what did he drop into the water think, if not the gun? I think he dropped a few bullets. I think a few of the bullets he dropped. Uh, so he lost some of the ammo. Um, because eventually he's only going to have one bullet left, right? And that's the bullet that's going to kill Shannon from Anna Lucia. Uh, so I assume that he, he just like lost a bunch of bullets. But I think the gun is fine. Okay, because of the fact that he was like so fervently reaching into the water, I thought it was for the gun. So when the gun comes up later, I'm like, oh... Okay, the magical reappearing gun um, took the frozen donkey wheel in and or appeared in the magic box. But I guess that makes sense that he would just drop a few bullets. But when you're fighting sharks, you need as many bullets as you, you need can as get. many bullets or, as or you just get. or just an oxygen tank. An oxygen tank would work as well. They really have none of that because Sawyer's like, look, the bullets are dry. If the powder's dry, the bullets go to oh crap, and then the shark bumps the raft again and he drops them all. Uh, it's really not working out so well. Uh, you think the shark's hungry for bullets, and that's why he bumped the raft? Michael thinks he's hungry for blood, and Sawyer's like, I guess I should just stop bleeding. Uh, that that made me laugh. I, I, I really like Sassy Sawyer Sassy, during this. Sassy Sawyer has his moments in this episode, for sure. Well, because like, he's legitimately questioning like Michael, accusing him of, like, it's your fault. You're the one who convinced me that I should fire this flare gun to save our lives. Uh, or you're bleeding please stop that right. like you're he's asking him to do completely ridiculous things and i feel like sawyer you know is definitely showing a bit of moving down the path of his characterization initially in this episode especially with what he does with michael but i feel like the more michael pushes against against him the more sawyer sort of reverts back into season one mode which is going to culminate in him actually seeking out another piece of uh, you know wreckage Knowing that there is a shark in the water just because he wants to prove how independent and, you know, solitary of a person he is. Man, I know that Michael's grieving. I know that Sawyer's been shot. So I'm trying not to give them too much flack. But damn, these freaking idiots, man. I mean, like, like he jumps into the water and blood, like, bloodily, like, slams his body into the water after a shark has just shown itself because Michael's being mean to him. So he goes on to the other pontoon and risks just getting slaughtered by a shark. And well, Josh, they had, they had no tape to mark a clear line down the center of the raft where you don't go onto my side and I don't go onto yours. They couldn't Ricardo it. Oh, my gosh. Oh, man. I mean, the more we're talking about it, the more I don't like the episode. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's, <laughs> it's just not, it's not a great episode. You know, there's a lot of problems here, and I think everyone knows it. Uh, some people higher on this episode than we are, but it's just, it's a little tough. It's a little tough. But before we move away from this scene, I do think it's interesting that, you know, Sawyer does sort of ask for some gratitude, for, at least from some slack of like, listen, you know, I'm, the reason why I got shot is because I pulled the gun to save your kid. And Michael says, no, 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 you did it to save your own ass. And I think it's interesting going back to Exodus. The reason why Jack gave Sawyer the gun was indeed to protect everybody. But again, if we're going back to sort of like Sawyer's reputation, especially in Michael's eyes, as much goodwill as some, some Bob Marley can give you, I think Michael still inherently thinks of Sawyer as a self-interested guy first and foremost. And so I think his initial assumption is... Yeah, you did that just so you can protect yourself. Maybe what we're accusing Jin of doing with his diving. Right. Even though it's, its intentions were the complete opposite. Right. Yeah. Anyway, Sawyer's on the other pond, too. He's like, I was trying to save your kid. And then, like, the, we go to a, another flashback, which we'll listen in on. Um, but uh, before we do, I do just want to say that, like, that line and that cut of Sawyer is now on the other pontoon. He says, I was trying to save your damn kid. 
uh, very clearly to me, Mike, and you tell me what you think. Like that was this is meant to be a transition to the Tampa job, right? Like that's just like mm-hmm. another sign of like this was a Sawyer episode. This was conceived of as a Sawyer episode. Yeah, I guess we can sort of look as to like who gets the last moment in each pre-flashback scene because that's usually what we get as an adage in flashbacks, right? It's usually going to cut to the character, typically, or yeah. the character has the last thing to say before the timpanies take us into the flashback. So. From that perspective, I guess we're sort of like two for two so far, right? Even though I guess the uh, going into the Michael at the law office one was sort of the two of them wrestling on the raft. So I guess we'll give that half a point. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's go to the flashback. And the flashback is going to be uh, the, the tense standoff with the lawyers, which we'll listen in on and then make fun of. When was the last time you actually saw your son? Uh, about a year ago. It was 14 months, actually. Is that a question, Lizzie? Why is that, Mr. Dawson? Why so long? Susan took him to Amsterdam for work. And you didn't have a problem with that? Excuse me? Well, since she's now going to Rome and you're filing an injunction, it just seems a little inconsistent to me. Incon- no. No, 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 no. She took him, though. I didn't want her to go. Please don't talk. You said there was nothing I could do. And you didn't do anything, did you? He's not going to answer that question. That's because there is no answer. You were in an accident recently, huh? Yeah. You had several surgeries, spent weeks in a private hospital room, extensive rehabilitation. Who paid for all of that, Mr. Dawson? I didn't ask you for anything. Could the record reflect that Mr. Dawson acknowledged that Miss Lloyd paid his bills? Susan, Su- tell him, Susan, tell Please him that I didn't ask you for anything. But I didn't... <clears throat> Do you know what Walt's first words were, Mr. Dawson? I'm sorry, what? His first words. Do you know what they were? I... No, I... I wasn't there. Do you know what his favorite food is? Do you? No. Okay, this is unnecessary. (sighs) Oh. For someone who wants to retain his paternal rights so badly, don't seem to know much about your son, Mr. Dawson. I'm his father. I'm sorry, could you say that louder, please, just for the record? I'm his father. Why do you have to... He said it so clearly. He doesn't need to say it louder for the record. He said, I'm his father. What? What? Did he stutter? Did he? I mean, Josh stutter, Lizzie Calloway. Would you, ex- would you expect Susan not to hire the worst lawyer on earth? I mean, essentially, this is oh. just like you know, begetting another incredibly terrible person. Oh my goodness! Both of the lawyers are terrible. Uh, the 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 one reason why I can find some allowance for for Better Call Saul is at least Saul knows that he's terrible, right? He's like, I'm yeah. a bad lawyer. You hired bad lawyer. Uh, I'm not. I'm not very good at this. Uh, but like, she's just uh, she's so she's so mean. She's ruthless, and, and, and she also doesn't make any sense. Like when when Michael says, "You said there was nothing I can do," and she said, "And you didn't do anything, did you?" But what what's what's the logic of that? Then Michael should have disobeyed his his ex girlfriend, and like, be, and that means that he doesn't love his son. I, I granted, I I know that law is sort of like this, unfortunately, but this scene to me just is sad. It's it's really sad because it, it just feels like Michael is consistently beaten down. He's backed into corners, and I mean he's. Right. We saw in the scene where Susan says, like, it's over, Michael, and I'm taking Walt. 
where he says, like, I'll fight it. And she says, no, you can't. And he vocalizes, you told me I couldn't. He's following directions and he's paying for it as a result. And it's just so depressing to watch, but not in like a weird Lockean Job-like way. It's more so like, this is a guy who just gets sort of like failed by the circumstances. And unfortunately, in this case, failed failed by money. I think it's very clear that like Susan hired the best in the business to essentially, you know, paint him as just this horribly manipulative and deadbeat dad when he is really anything but the sort. We saw in that aforementioned scene that like he is lovingly playing with Walt on the floor. And this poor woman is unfortunately saying like, this guy doesn't care about his kid. He doesn't even know what his favorite four o'clock TV show is on the WB. How can you judge this man as a father? Right. Yeah. I hate this person. Uh, Mike, I think that the way that and, and, we're, and we're supposed to, yeah, I think the way that some people like hate Susan, this is how much I hate this lawyer. I hate Susan's lawyer more than I hate Susan. I mean, I have to hate Susan more because she hired the lawyer. No. Like you have to imagine the machinations in her. I mean, but Michael tries to talk to her directly and she like really turns him down at the moment. It's only when she is allowed to make the decision. Maybe it's just, again, the maybe, maybe it's literally anyone in Susan's orbit that I despise at this point. We should also mention, we got a couple of pieces of feedback with this, that Josh, this is a scene, uh, or at least a piece of scenery, not too unfamiliar for those of us that have been going down the hatch since season one. Yes, we have seen this uh, this office before. This is not the first time that we are hanging out here. Uh, this was indeed in Raised by Another. Uh, this is where Claire met the Stewart family, uh, the famous MVPs, the Stewarts, <laughs> where, where yeah. Claire gave up Aaron, or almost gave up Aaron for adoption. Yeah, I, 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 I like to call it the child snatching room. <laughs> yeah. Uh, essentially like, hey, if you, if you have a kid that someone else is going to take, go to this room. So it's a, it's a conference room in the Hawaiian State Supreme Court in uh, Honolulu is, is where this is uh, located. Uh, so, yeah, uh, good times. I mean, not so great times. <laughs> it's, it's fun to see this piece uh, of scenery reoccur. You know, it's, it's one of those little things that I definitely wouldn't have noticed, you know, at the time. Because I guess raised by another had aired almost a year ago at that point. But it's one of the fun advantages of getting to go down the hatch here is we get to sort of see the production process. And sometimes that involves being like, all right, we need another legal, you know, legalese type of room. Let's go back to that room we used in Raised by Another and dress it up a bit differently. All right, so let's go back to the present and uh, let's try and forget about this awful encounter. And here's another awful encounter as (laughs) as, uh, Michael from his pontoon is watching Sawyer on his piece of wreckage, uh, digging around in his own shoulder where he'd been shot. And Michael's like, you're going to pull your bullet out with your bare hands? Sawyer says, if you've got a better idea, let me know. Otherwise, go to hell. Uh, and uh, <laughs> Michael's like, you can't do this on your own. And so he's like, I thought we parted ways, Mike. Uh, Mike, if, I, I if, you, and I, if about- you and I ever get this contentious with each other, uh, it's going to be a cold day in hell. Yeah, well, I should also mention, and we talked about, uh, this was mentioned from the very beginning, but Sawyer's use of Mike as a nickname, I, I find really interesting because nobody else no calls else him does. that. No one else does. And, I, and, and I think that just speaks to like Sawyer's cheeky persona where he sort of has his own nicknames for everybody that nobody else uses and Mike has to be one of them. So Sawyer's going to dig into his shoulder. He's going to scream a lot as he's doing it. Uh, Josh Josh Holloway, he's not going to make the Mount Rushmore of scream acting, but I think he will for pain acting. He, sh- like, he should, he, though. He has a great scream. There's some great Sawyer screams that we've gotten over the over the years and, and even in season one when he's being uh 
tortured by Saeed. Uh, and here now he's he's torturing himself. I did not pull the screams because I don't know where you are as you are listening to this. And I don't want to I don't want to frighten you. Uh, but I did uh, I did pull the very, very, very quick sound that we'll use for sound for. That's uh, the, the most relevant bit of this scene. You got a bandaid. <laughs> just i do love that i love that it's line. a great line and so that's what i'm talking about is this whole thing like you remember the time that sawyer pulled a bullet out of his shoulder and you remember when sawyer like cheekily said got a band-aid like this episode has things in it that you remember fondly uh and multiple things in this episode that you remember fondly um and i i think that that is a a fairly big difference between this and whatever the case may be I think also going back to this idea that, oh, we're on the same current, it's thematic. Not only does it keep these characters forced together, even though they're on separate pontoons, but it's almost emblematic to me of the ever-widening gap between Jack and Locke. And a lot of these characters where they're on the same location, they're almost stuck together on that island, but they are fundamentally against each other from a value-based perspective. And so while that literally means that, you know, Sawyer Sawyer and Michael have to sort of acknowledge each other, it's almost like the worst situation where you say goodbye to a friend and then you realize that you're taking the same subway line. And so you're like, oh, I guess we're actually going the same direction. That's happening here, but much more cantankerously. But on the island, it's sort of a similar thing where, hey, everyone's going down the hatch, but people have much different reasons to than others. All right, uh, let's go back down the hatch. Let's cut away, and we're continuing that that cliffhanger of where Locke was with Kate and Desmond. And Desmond keeps asking, are you him? Are you him? Uh, and John Locke, my man, uh, is like, yeah, that's me. I'm him. Can you believe it? Oh, my God, it's me. Uh, and Desmond's like, oh, my God, it's you. That's so great. I can't believe you're him. I can't believe you're actually here. (laughs) I think Locke says, well, (laughs) here I am. (laughs) Uh, So, Josh, do do you think this is a bit of Anthony Cooper coming out of Locke? Yeah, but he's very bad at it because he's about to, like, fully blow his cover in in a second here, which uh, uh, we can can listen in on now as as things uh, really escalate here moving forward. What did one snowman say to the other snowman? I don't know what you're talking about. Get rid of the knife. You're not him. We didn't come here to hurt you. Yeah? Then why did you come? You're in a plane crash. Where are you now? And when was that? 44 days ago. 44 days? How long have you been down here? Shut it. the wrong person how's that brother it's pointless to tie me up i'm not dangerous but her she's a fugitive 
So what does that mean you then, brother? I'm a regional collections manager for a cardboard manufacturer. Boxes, primarily. All right, then, box my entire up. Hey! You'd be a good girl, right? What do you think you're doing? Doing what's best for all of us. Right, bring her here. I really like that scene, Mike. I, I, I do. I love the what did one snowman say to the other snowman. I love when we'll get the punchline to that several episodes from now. Um, I, I really enjoy the, the yeah, Locke bungles it, but then he's very clever with Kate, sneaks her a knife. It's yeah. a good thing he packed 400, so he no, has one I, to spare. I, I will actually give Locke a lot of commendation for this maneuver he's been in free fall for us for a while but like Locke has like a few moments in this episode it's like oh, that was pretty good that was good well because well because if you think about it not only does he know that like okay kate will be able to work her way out of it but also i think he'd much rather be in the position to talk to desmond than have to throw kate to the wolves of doing an honor well run. not even that i think in the spirit of like he was going to do whatever he had to do to be uh you know if not like uh very first boots down the down the hatch then you know second pair and he'll leave him there you know he'll take his <laughs> he'll take his boots off um but this is why he and Boone didn't tell anybody, right? Because like he wanted to be in control of all the decisions around the hatch, and he didn't like it. The, the more and more people became involved in the decision making, I think he wants to be that guy who talks to the man. Now that he knows that there's a man who lives down here, this has been his whole quest. So he he wants to have that conversation. But I do think you're right also that he recognizes that the best weapon he has at his disposal right now is putting Kate in a position where um, she gets to be sort of like the underestimated element in the room, uh, not elephant in the room. And he's very wise in giving her the knife. I also just love that line. She's a fugitive. I just, always, yeah. I've always loved that. Just line, like Reed. under the bus, yeah. but he has to like, have it be believable, right? Like he, he wants her reaction and be like, what the, because, I mean, that's our reaction at the time. It's like, Locke, you dirty jerk. I know, you, you are, dog. You're selling Kate short. But, like, it turns out that, again, it's it's everything is is for a purpose. Desmond's reaction in this scene is really interesting. All of it's great. When, Everyone's great. Well when, well, when they talk about the plane crash, considering that what he knows about that right, one day right, right. when things really just went crazy and, and he started asking, Where is everybody? <laughs> You you feel like he's like, oh, he's starting to put the dots together. Granted, he'll come to the big, uh, you know, the big epiphany in the finale of I crashed, your, I crashed your plane, brother. But I think that maybe here he's starting to maybe put two and two together a bit of like their story checks out 44 days ago. That was the day where, where I killed Inman and things went a bit kerblooey. So it would make sense as to why they, you know, they ended up here. This is also where uh, Locke is going to earn the nickname Boxman from Desmond. I love that nickname. It's a great nickname. It's a great nickname. All right, Boxman. Uh, it's, just, it's just really fun. So I, I love everything having to do with that scene. Like, I think the flow of it is weird, and it's strange that, like, we broke it up with all of the, the raft stuff, and the raft stuff is still not great. Um, but uh, and, and even if we're, like, just completely rehashing the hatch stuff, it is fun from Locke's perspective. The scenes from Locke's perspective and Kate's perspective, I think, are great. Um, and I, I actually think maybe I'm enjoying them even more this time around than, than I have in, in quite a while. Maybe not, you know, the first pass through. Uh, was probably the highest, but uh, I'm I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying it more now than I have in in recent rewatches, uh, and that could be partly because 
of how it contrasts to the quality of the rest of the episode. Uh, uh, do, do you think in the Watchmen universe that John Locke is a part of, do you think Boxman is his identity? I think it's very possible. And he just has a giant cardboard box on his head. His cardboard yeah, box but he's also still in the wheelchair, so yeah. it's like very non-conspicuous it's of like, a, here's a man in a wheelchair with a box over him like a robot. A lot of strange things happen. No, I believe that was Lil Wayne. Um, all right, so back <laughs> at, at the caves... Uh, we get uh, Hurley and Jack's conversation about how Jack's going to go, and I changed my mind. And so we're just we're revisiting that even at this point. Uh, and I and I is that an excuse just to give us like a little bit more forward progression on Charlie has the Virgin Mary statue, and now Claire finds the Virgin Mary statue. And he's like, oh, there's nothing in there. Just get that back. Get that right back. Uh, why is this scene in this episode? I don't know. I guess it's sort of they're they're really trying to plant seeds that we just don't like come out of nowhere. We saw a bit of Charlie in the last episode and they did not allude to the Virgin Mary. But I would say this scene just feels, again, something weirdly jutting in with the rest of the rhythm of this episode. Uh, you know, especially Charlie's weird ass logic of like, you know, Claire says, oh, I didn't know you were so religious. Charlie could have an easy out by talking about like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I grew up I grew up in the faith. I was an altar boy, etc. But he says... I'm not. It just might come in handy. Nice to have around. Why would a non-religious person right. say that a Virgin Mary statue was nice to have around unless there were ulterior motives going on? And he is religious. So it's just... It's, yeah, like, it's, he, it wouldn't have been a lie if he said yes. Yeah, so, I don't know. It's, uh, we, we've, we've talked about this before, and, and here we are. We're, we're in the process of it. Uh, season two, really, in, in a lot of ways, does, does it lose the plot on Charlie to a degree? Uh, and is this a first strike in that direction? I think there's going to be a lot of times to really uh, take the Charlie writing to task over the course of the season. I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole right now, but here's an example. Here's an example. Well, no, it's 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 just a little taste, but I think it's a good aperitif as mm-hmm. to where it's we're not. It's going to be a while before we get into the fire plus water of it all, which actually, in retrospect, uh, we might be, you know, might just be, this might be a a golden waterfall compared to what we're going to see in fire plus water down the line. But I do think that they're starting to set up a bit and we're starting to get a bit of a taste as to how season two is going to treat Charlie in general and how his character particularly is going to handle his relationship with Claire. Back on the ocean, Sawyer and Michael still fighting. <laughs> There's still so much infighting between these guys. As now Sawyer is going to, to say, this is all your fault, Mike. Uh, that boat. I, do you know anything about boats, Mike? Because I do. That boat had a range of about 100 miles. It had to leave from a port that was close, like the island. The French chick said the others were coming for the kid. They came. They came for yours. Bluebeard okay. blew us up because of you. We need to stop here because, (laughs) Josh, I know that, like, well, no, because, look, plot holes, I can understand, especially with a convoluted show, but, Josh, Michael and Sawyer don't know that the others asked for a kid. The only reason why we know that the others had asked for a child, that the Whisper said they were coming for a kid, is because Rousseau told that to Saeed and Charlie on the beach when they went to get Aaron hours after the raft launched oh no how how does sawyer know what russo said oh no if he was the miles out into the ocean that point? The ship, no miles comes later but yeah the ship's sinking <laughs> we're in trouble here mike i i i had never even really thought about that ever um but you're you're absolutely correct you're 100 percent look right. I, 
I don't think a plot hole is one thing to be like, well, this episode's terrible because no, of it. No, but like, but, on, I, but, uh, but to, to throw that on the pile, right? Like, throw that right. on like the burning, <laughs> the burning wreckage of the raft. It's like, oh no, that doesn't make any sense. I think, that, I think it's again, like, I and and I think that this is probably an example of, uh, you know, people who were involved with Lost really definitely would like point back to this episode, and be like, yeah, this one isn't one of our best efforts. Uh, like I think we we really just had to put an episode together at this point. We panicked, we choked on a few things. I think if you would point that out, they'd be like, "Yeah, well, what are you gonna do?" Uh, but the episode is called Adrift. You know, it you, you can't you can't. You, I guess somebody could write this stuff, but like it's very aptly titled for an episode that just like is really lost, uh, a lost episode that is truly lost, that is truly adrift, uh, that has really lost the plot. Um, but that it's just it's more of the same. Like even separating that out of it, of just like. Uh, Michael and Sawyer just having like this these these childish fights where now like Michael literally like starts like splashing at Sawyer after Sawyer's like what are you gonna do splash me and so he like splashes Michael and so they do <laughs> yeah <laughs> Ma- so, so play <laughs> Michael like actually like splashes Sawyer's pontoon into into non-existence uh, and so like this is a man who is going to murder two people later on in the season so I guess this is like. Uh, you know, a step in that direction that Michael is going to destroy Sawyer's pontoon. And so either Sawyer is now at risk of drowning this man who's been shot or this man who's been shot may now get eaten by the shark that's that's popping around. And is Michael going to feel any guilt over that? Yeah, it's I mean, this is a really interesting conversation. Like you said, it gets a little frustrating, not just the the splashing, the little childish splashing that's going on, but essentially an argument between the two as to who's more responsible for this, Sawyer for convincing Michael to fire the flare gun or Michael for having a child right. in general. Like, right. it's such a bad b- bananas-esque terms of it's to, bad. to th- throw the blame for. But I think there's a really interesting moment baked in here where Sawyer tries to apologize, but Michael rebuffs him and says... You have no idea what it's like to take care of somebody else. Right. And again, that's flashing back to the reputation of season one Sawyer. It goes right back to Born to Run when him and Kate are having that conversation and they talk about, you know, you have nothing off that island to go to. Uh, and I think that that's the image that everyone has of Sawyer at this point. So even when he does extend an olive branch, they think he has a knife behind his back to slice their wrist once they take his hand. And I, I think that's a, a very telling moment as to both Sawyer's character at this moment and how he has so much more to grow yes he saved the rudder yes he tried to save walt and and, you know paid for it with his blood but it's clear that there's still a ways for him to go he could use the points to quote hurley he could use the points um and you could also see here as like uh when michael's saying like shut up you don't even know what it's like to care for somebody else like the way that this is cut together once again feels like we were going to flash back to the tampa job uh what we flash back to instead is more of michael uh the penultimate susan lloyd scene of lost uh as susan and michael are going to meet privately sans lawyers thank goodness even if inadvisable and this is where susan's like i think you're going to win Think you're gonna win? Your lawyer—he's uh, actually pretty good. Uh, you got yeah. He has that. He has the, is he the guy who has that robot in a case <laughs> that he shows off in his office? <laughs> but I don't know. She her argument—it's like uh, no one's winning here. Just let me keep Walt. You got to take care of yourself and get healthy and get back on your feet financially. And you got to pursue your art. And how are you going to do any of that if Walt's in your life? Uh, please let him go. Please just let him go. This isn't about you or me. It's about Walt. This is the best thing for Walt. 
Um, and look, I mean, like, is is it better for Walt to to be with Susan? Sure, maybe, but like at the same time, uh, that doesn't mean that like the way that this has all gone down hasn't been like trash. Like, it's just been- right, and that's and it's also not her right to say that this is the right thing. You know, I feel like that invalidates Michael's role as a father because they're making the argument like, you know, he's my son. Since when, Michael? Again, you were the one who not only removed the son from the equation, invalidating Michael's role as a father to begin with and right. failing to allow him to become a father, but also said, no, 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 you can't fight me on this. Right. You know, it, it just seems like she is she's slapping his hand and being like, ooh, your hand shouldn't be so red. Ooh, you know? in translation. But like, yeah, she's the one directly responsible for it. And she's trying to play it off by being like, no, you're an artist. That's what you want to be. But like, we find out from him talking to Walt that I think... I wouldn't say he found a passion in construction, but I think he at least is seeing artistic beauty in yeah. like a flat iron building. So of like, course. who is she to say like, oh, you should do this with your life. You'll be better off that way. She's doing so much insinuating here. And it ends with then let him go, which obviously is the exact opposite of what Michael is going to do. Like you mentioned, he's going to do so many things to keep holding on and make sure that Walt does not, you know, he does not let go of Walt, but it's just... God, Susan's a terrible character for just making all these assumptions about him without even knowing him, too. She walked out of his life, too, just like with Walt. Who is she to make all these assumptions of, like, yeah, you're poor, you should be doing this, I know you, you're an artist. You don't know him. You got the hell out of Dodge with your son and barely got to know this guy afterwards. She paid for his medical bills. She paid for his Medicare. Yeah, but only to, like, gird the loins to be like, oh, yeah, by the way, I'm going to take my son, and now I have something to hold over you in case my, you know, my really mean lawyer is going to be able to hold that over your head when we take this to court later on. Those loins are girded. I wonder if there's any loins in the pantry where Kate Austin... If so, I have a lot of questions for Desmond. <laughs> he's just he, he he's left all of the loins alone over the last few years. I don't think there's a freezer in there. So what are they like? Uh, no. dry aged, freeze dried loins. Listen, loins. don't don't blame Desmond. It's his main policy is I like my privacy. <laughs> Kate is in the pantry. <laughs> I love this scene. I love this scene. This is a scene that I love, and I genuinely love it. I love. I love Kate. Uh, I. I think we get a lot of good scenes over the course of Lost of like people lock Kate up to their own chagrin, right? Like, yeah. you you leave her unattended at your own uh, at your at your own undoing. As Kate is able to like get out from beneath the binds, she is. Uh, she's able to like get her legs out. Then she's able to saw her way through the the, the wrist binding. Uh, and like Kate's just going to do that a few times, and uh, that's great because she's a fugitive. So good writing that Kate is always going to be good of getting herself out of situations like these. Um, and then she turns on the light, and she's in, she sees that she's in a food pantry, and she's surrounded by stuff. Uh, and it's it's so fun to see this uh, civilization in the wild meeting each other once yeah. again, um, pausing down to see all the stuff. There's lots of nuts in here. There's a bunch of oh, different boy. olive jars. I, w- I would say, like, I think if Dharma was really proactive, like maybe if Dharma was not based in the 70s, they would have been much more proactive of like, this is a peanut free environment. Let's make sure in case any of our replacements are allergic, we don't want to go them to, into anaphylactic shock in the yes. swan. It would be bad. Um, there's there's like Mountain Dew in there. There's some sort of like electrolyte in like a two liter. Ooh, you think there's some gamer fuel down yeah, in the pantry? I think that's possible. Mike, Mike Bloom. There is absolutely 
a canister on a shelf that's labeled peaches. This uh. is not made up. This is not a joke. This Are you is, sure it's not? Make sure it's not pears. This is real. It's peaches. It may have been pears at the Peach Man Ray <laughs> Mullins Farms, but it is peaches here in the Dharma Pantry. You can fire up the episode. You can pause it. It's very early on in the exploration of the pantry. Peaches on a can. The can, Mike, looks dirty, filthy. Oh. These are some filthy ass peaches that Ray Mullen probably wouldn't even eat. Well, I bet you this is all back in the day, right? Assuming that they like stocked some stuff when the swan first came around, that they're like, hey, here this young upstart Australian farmer is, uh, you know, raising peaches on his own. Let's buy some. And, you know, he was able to get it on that market. But when the Dharma Initiative went under, I think so did Ray Mullen's business. It really Maybe. dried up. And that's, yeah. why, that's why he's in such a bad situation when Kate visits him. Yeah. Shout out to the peach man, Ray Mullen, as there's a peach can here in the pantry. Uh, so here we are, Kate, once again in a pantry, and that's just very exciting, Mike. Uh, it's great stuff. And of course, as we mentioned earlier about the Apollo bars, this is the scene where Kate is going to see as she she's going to like try and get into the air vent. Uh, she's going to move some boxes down so she can like uh, stand up and get into the air vent. And as she moves things around, she sees there's a box of candy bars, candy bars, and it's an Apollo bars. And she's going to eat one and she's like going to stop down to eat one and have like a really happy moment with the chocolate bar. Uh, and I, I may have some questions about how many Apollo bars she stuffs into her butt pocket. <laughs> think that that may have been uh, it's certainly a choice and it, it could be bad, a bad one. Um, but the stopping down to eat a chocolate bar in that moment is one of the most relatable moments in all of yep. Lost. Well, I love it as well, because like I think it's it just shows how far we've come from episode four when it's like we where's the fruit where's the boar where's the fish and now we come a long way to like oh my god there's chocolate but i think it's a great character moment of like yeah if you were starving on an island like running for your life for a little over a month hell yeah you'd see a chocolate bar and like stuff it down your face you know like that that's something that you miss so so much and we'll sort of experience that a lot more over the next few episodes as more and more characters come into the hatch i can imagine that maybe josh Kate foresaw a situation where Sawyer comes back to the island and she's able to use the chocolate to act out a fantasy Ooh, that he was going to do with hey. uh, Mrs. Perrineau once upon a time. He's no Apollo bar, uh, James Sawyer. <laughs> Ford. Uh, but so she she stops down, she eats the chocolate, she gets in the vent. Uh, I just love that. I, I think it's a, I think it's a really great scene, and I think it's once again. There are these scenes here in Adrift that you just kind of remember in isolation. Maybe you don't associate them with Adrift, but you remember Kate eats the chocolate bar. Uh, and, and it's a very good scene. It, it's, it's still still really plays. Uh, this is another really good scene. It's yet another Locke and Desmond scene. Uh, as Locke is with Desmond in the breakfast nook and Desmond is pacing around. And this is all of this feels very true to the characters that they end up being. Uh, Desmond has been... You know, locked here for years, hasn't really seen basically anybody other than Kelvin for years. Uh, and so he's finding out that the world is still out there and he has sort of this childlike wonder to him, even as he's trying to protect himself. Uh, and, and John is trying to be like that spiritual leader that's like, you don't need the gun. It's really unnecessary. Uh, and, you know, he's very curious and it's the artificial sunlight because he never leave. Uh, I just love this. I think all of this is really good. I think Locke's approach here is so interesting it's good. where I think his read of Desmond is really accurate in this moment where I think we've gotten very frustrated with how much Locke has been lying, especially at the tail end, the taily end of season one, that to have him be so refreshingly candid 
is such an interesting choice. And I think it's because he reads that Desmond wants that truth at this moment. He probably reads this as Desmond being a very paranoid guy who spends all his time underground and has barely ran into a person in God knows how long. And so if he wants companionship, then Locke is willing to provide that truth. He says, you know, this is how the crash happened. Oh, who's that guy? Probably Jack. You're going to meet him later on. I think any other person might be a bit more cagey or hell might just make off de- make up details off the top of their head to really confuse Desmond. But Locke is so realistic and down to earth with him, which is the complete right approach to take to somebody like Desmond. So I will say again, good on Locke for reading that situation accurately. Yeah. Desmond uh, has some more questions for Locke. How many have gotten sick? Who's ill? Who's dead? Well, I mean, Hurley ate a lot of fruit, so there was that whole problem. <laughs> that did Michael happen. got poison, but it was meant for gin. Yeah. So there it is. Like, you know, it's the, the sickness thread that uh, do we just chalk it up to the smoke monster and the man in black stuff? Was this something that was going to go in a much more specific direction? How much of this is linked to the gas that takes out the Dharma or, and the vaccines? I'll plan my flag. I feel like we're going to talk about this at later points. My personal flag is that uh, the, you know, it might link to the orchid, the the hostile takeover from back in the day. But I personally think that the vaccines and the idea of the sickness, much like the hazmat suits, are uh, placebos put into by the Dharma Initiative in order to keep placate pla- placate their members and keep them under their thumb. If there's one big, uh, you know, one big existential threat, it makes them less likely to work against your main edict. Yeah, because there is a main edict. There is something that you got to do if you are stationed at the swan. And in fact, we've heard it before already. It was the first thing you hear in season two, but it was a relatively calm, uh, you know, not a big to do situation. Uh, but now it's a big to do what's about to happen here for the first time in season two and indeed in the series of Lost, a very scary countdown occurrence. And let's listen in sound number six. Job. seen one of those in 20 years. Do you know how to use it? Yes. Sit. Right, now listen carefully. Type in exactly what I tell you. You understand exactly. Nothing else. Four. Eight. Fifteen. Did you hear that? What? What did you just put in? What number did you just put in? Fifteen. Right, 16, 23, 42. Press execute. What's going to happen? Just push it. Jack. Uh, 
Uh, and this this is the first time we see the clock, I believe, right? Yeah, that CGI clock. <laughs> After all that damn prop shopping. Okay, so I have, a, I have a few questions about this scene. First, when Desmond hears something, we assume that's Jack coming down the hatch, right? Uh, it could be that. It could be Kate's in the in the vent getting, you know, like digging around and stuff. Uh, I think either one of those, I would be happy with that answer. So we talked a bit about, you know, placing these scenes and whether or not, you know, it's necessary to go back and cover this ground when we're going to move forward in orientation. I mean, if we do end up cutting this scene and we just go to orientation where they have to enter the numbers before the computer gets shot. I mean, what do you think about introducing it in this episode in particular, considering that episodes one and three are really going to be the ones that really substantiate the mythos well, of the hatch. So like an argument in favor of it, there there are two that come to mind. One is if this episode has to exist, at least like do something really compelling in the hatch. And this is compelling. Like uh, we saw, you know, Desmond types type the numbers at the beginning of the of the season, but there were really no stakes involved in it. And now in this moment he's like hyper panicked, like we gotta do that right now. It has to happen right now. So you're now uh, leaving episode two being like, ooh, what what did all that mean? Why was that so important? Uh, so it makes it makes this episode not entirely useless uh, is is what I would say there. Um, and then beyond that, I think it helps because you have that information in episode three when they shoot the computer. Um, now you have seen for yourself uh, Desmond's reaction um, to an earlier moment when it worked, when they had like successfully pushed the button. Um, and it had gone through, but like the panic that was with him in that moment leading up to it. So you're, you're rooted in it with him of how dangerous it is that the computer is broken. Like you've seen from his experience with Locke and you get it for Locke too, that Locke saw that with Desmond as well. Um, that I think that that carries over pretty well into orientation. Those are the arguments in favor of it. I do think, uh, you know, we, we lose the great horror aspect of the end of man of science, man of faith. If we condense these three episodes, uh, and if we lose the Lock and Desmond stuff as well. Um, but like, if that means we lost a drift and instead just had a tighter season, I think I actually, you know, having gone back through a drift at this point, probably would vote for that. Yeah, I mean, I think somewhere, and I guess it comes into chron- I actually, I have not seen Chronologically Lost before. Maybe that's going to be our next rewatch after we make our way through the uh, the regularly aired episodes. But I would be very intrigued to see how this entire series of events are edited. You know, like how much do they dart between... Jack going down the hatch, Kate in the vents, and Locke and Desmond talking. Right. Um, yeah, I think it would be compelling to watch. I haven't watched it myself, um, but I think that this sequence would be would be pretty cool. Uh, to, yeah, and also, and then also, how much do they cut back to Michael and and Sawyer on the raft, like in this episode? Because I guess all these moments are happening at the same time. You assume. But one of the things that's supposed to be like a victory about this episode is that it's showing you the other side and it's showing you what's happening elsewhere. Uh, and it's showing you, um, you know, the the reverse angle of things from the previous episode. And yet, even here, like, th- there's some strange stuff. Like, so, so I love that. Like, when once Jack gets into the picture, that we're going to see Kate in the vent, and she's calling for Jack. She's shouting at Jack, and that pays off that you can hear her in Man of Science, Man of Faith. Um, we're going to see Desmond like maneuvering the mirrors to look for Jack. Your right. doctor's got a gun, brother. Is a good line. Yeah, which uh, I'm assuming uh, is a a Lindelof song waiting to happen, right? Yeah, I think that that could be fun. Um, Desmond puts Mama Cass on, and from Jack's perspective in Man of Science, Man of Faith, that happened. But then didn't he also get blinded by light? There's nothing with that 
here from the Desmond perspective and the Locke perspective of things. Um, so, I mean, being nitpicky here at this point with that, but like, it is a continuity question. How did the light come on? Yeah, I'm not sure. Maybe there, maybe the, the ghost of Inman was there operating the light the entire time. Maybe he's like, he's the lighthouse keeper within the hatch. Yeah. Uh, and so we just, we, we rehash the ending of Man of Science, Man of Faith here. Uh, Desmond shoots the gun again. This time we see how close Kate is to getting her head blown off. Oh my God. Could you have imagined <laughs> if just like blood starts pouring down from the vents? That's a very sad alternate reality. Uh, but then Jack and Desmond have their still you that moment. And that is the end of everything that's happening in the hatch in this episode. Um, meanwhile, back on the raft, we're going to we're gonna tidy up the shark storyline. We listened to that at the start of this podcast. So I don't know how much you want to revisit it. Uh, Sawyer, I guess, has, has dried up the bullets. He's given Michael the gun. He goes into the water to swim to a pontoon because the pontoon is going to be more stable. So he needs to liberate the pontoon and let's lure the shark out into the open. Right. And, and now again, this is, I mean, this is understandable from a guy that's going to jump out of a helicopter I guess. a couple seasons from now to save six people. As I think, sorry, he's a self-sacrificial person. And I think the fact that he's the one, despite, again, the wounded shoulder to be the one to swim to the pontoon because he knows if he stays on with Michael that the entire raft is going to sink does say something about him. Yeah, I think so. Um, and I guess, again, like the thing about this uh, that works for me to some degree, even if it's all, it feels like, you know, just manufactured drama, is Michael just like unloading a gun and like unloading a gun in fury is uh, a really stark, not shark contrast <laughs> uh, to when we'll see Michael with a gun again later in the season. A couple of times, actually, uh, you're going to yeah. see you're going to see Michael, you know, obviously kill Anna Lucia and, and Libby. Uh, and there's not going to be a lot of fury there so much as just like, I can't believe this is how far I fall and I can't believe this is what I have to do, but I'm going to do it to get my kid back. Uh, but then also once he's been found out by Jack and Saeed and he goes on the mission with them and the Hurley bird shows up, Michael's first instinct is to to shoot as many bullets into the bird as he possibly can, uh, except he doesn't have any bullets in the gun and that's how he finds out. So I, I think that this book ends pretty well. Um, I'm, I'm not furious with it. Uh, is it just like sort of whatever? Yeah, for sure. Uh, but like, does it have like some symmetry to the season? It does, at, at least as far as I'm concerned. Seeing so the shark was first blood for Michael, and he just couldn't get that taste out of <laughs> yeah. his mouth. Yeah, uh, once he got it, he wasn't able to to get around. Now it. I'm now I'm imagining two for the road, and Michael just seeing like sharks in the faces of Anna Lucia and Libby. Yeah. That's all he imagines them as, and that's what makes him you know be able to to do what he does. Yeah, but I'm assuming that the shark survived, and we're not going to give an LVP point to the shark. The shark is going to just swim away. Uh, go off on some sort of Pixar adventure in a totally different universe. No, he's going to join... Uh, well, I guess it was 2005, so it was right after. He could have joined Will Smith and Martin Scorsese and all those fun-loving fish under the sea. I think that's right. Uh, so, yeah, so he uh, he shoots the shark. Sawyer gets the pontoon. Hooray, hooray, hurrah. Uh, and then we get the final flashback of the episode that's going to get us into the final movement of the episode, which I think you and I are both on the same page that we that we like this. Uh, we, mm -hmm. we, we like the rest of the episode pretty much uh, all the way down the line. Um, but let's listen to that final flashback because I think it's really, really great acting from Harold Perrineau. There he is. Do you see him? Hi. Oh. <laughs> hey. Hey, I'm sorry I'm late. Packing's been a disaster and the plane leaves first thing in the morning. Sure. No problem. Uh, hey, 
want to say hi, Walt? Hi, Walt. I'm... I'm... Hey, uh... <laughs> this is for you, man. You like bears? Yes, uh, sure. He's just really shy. Hey, little man. Well, I guess I can't call you that, I mean, because... Look how big you are. So, you and I, uh, we're not going to see each other for a while, Walt. Uh, but you are going to have a great life. <laughs> I know your mommy, she's going to take real good care of you. And Brian is going to take good care of you, too. But you know what? I just want you to know that no matter where you go, I, that your daddy, yeah, your daddy, he loves you very, very much. And I always will. Always. Okay? I'm sorry. No. It's okay. It's okay. Uh, I hate here. Uh, uh, just, uh, you know, you know, let them know it's from me sometime, okay? that the best susan lloyd scene on lost too <laughs> probably um sorry uh <laughs> i'm sorry oh okay sorry i gotta get my composure back Mike bloom oh my god Are i you mean okay? this is this is a tough this is a this is a really tough scene to watch as a father um because i cannot I Are you sure imagine. it's not just the totality of a drift being such a miserable episode? I know, it's making me cry tears. tears of pain. It's like digging a finger into my shoulder. I'm crying tears of happiness knowing that Susan is no longer on our screens anymore. <laughs> no, but this is, am- this, this is amazing. Again, it's Lost, Lost meets you where you are, and you're watching this, uh, you know, and, and listening to like a very good scene in this episode as a father. And uh, you're, I'm sure, uh, imagining what this would be like for you. Exactly. And, that, and that's what makes me look. Look, Michael acts like a jerk through a good portion of this episode. Even you could argue, you know, when he is desperately arguing for his son's life, he's, you know, disobeying his lawyer. He is really making this emotional plea. And when you project yourself, it's just a situation I can never imagine and I would never want to. And I think what makes it so uplifting yet heartbreaking for me is the way that Harold Perrineau puts up such a brave face in the face of Walt. You know, again, like we talked about in special, like, he's a good guy who, despite Susan and Brian doing so much wrong to him and selling him down the river, he's still like, she's going to take good care of you. Brian's going to take good care of you. Uh, There's this really 
great sort of mini arc that's going on where, you know, he introduces himself to Walt. He can't say that he's his father initially because that uh, the whole identity is really confused. But then he has this beautiful moment at the end where he says, I want you to know no matter where you go that I, that your daddy loves you very, yeah. very much. And it's this idea of like, no, you know what? I'm going to stand my ground. Susan, be damned. I am his father and I'm losing him right now, but I'm always going to be his father. And, you know, even when what I find heartbreaking is that a, since Walt's so young and shy, his final words, or at least what he thinks for his final words go unreciprocated, right? That, you know, the final thing, the emotional uh, outreach he gives to his son, unfortunately can't be reciprocated. And that also speaks to like the accusations that have been levied his way about, you don't know your son. This is a proof of it that like this guy isn't, you know, saying, thanks, dad. I love you too. See, there's a really beautiful moment where like when he's handing the bag to Susan, he can like barely look at them in the eyes. I think there's a bit of embarrassment there, but he puts on such a brave front. And then, and then she turns around and uh, his, his face just falls yeah. and the facade breaks and it legitimately gets me every time. But see, it's going to be right now even talking about it because you see how, fragile he is a person right now yes the surgeries may have healed his legs but emotionally he has come to pieces and there's this really subtle but great moment where you see him like biting the corner of his mouth and you see it on the subtitles it seems like he's about to say something and and i wonder what that thing is is it him speaking up to like say one final thing to walt is it him saying no you can't leave i have no idea but he can't say it. And that, I think, is is the culmination of where Michael feels at this point, is that he tried to fight for his son. Everything was working against him, and and to the point where he was lost his voice. He put up a good front, but he still has stuff he wants to say, and he can't. And that's why this scene is just... It's always been good to me, even in an episode that I really don't like. I find this scene absolutely beautiful, absolutely heartbreaking. I think... In our new edition, our machete order, where we sort of cut out a drift, I think if you take this scene and put it in special, I think it works just as well. But, oh man, I, I you know I've watched it like three times slash heard it three times in the past few days, and it's yeah. really not been going each and every time. Yeah, no, it's 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 really really great. Uh, I I think especially com- uh, and and we can move the conversation into the next scene is you know you pair it with when we go back to the present and. Uh, Michael and Sawyer are on the pontoon and they've drifted back towards the island and Sawyer has that line, look, the current brought us back, we're home. Um, but before even that, which I'll also just say, yet another example of one of the things about this episode is it it has these moments of excellence. Uh, the scene we're talking about right now, the flashback scene, is an excellent scene. Um, this scene, this moment where Michael and Sawyer are looking back at the island uh, and it's like the sun is rising and they're both on the pontoon is such a beautiful look at the island. Uh, yeah. And it's just like etched in my brain forever. And that that exists in a drift the, you know, so you, you got to give it points for that. Um, but this moment before that where Michael is crying uh, and Michael, I don't know if he's like expressly reliving that moment with Walt when he said goodbye to Walt. Um, all those years earlier, uh, certainly with the way that this episode was produced and written, probably that's not the intention, but um, he's having a a moment like that again. Uh, And this is when he says, like, it was my fault. I never should have brought him on the raft, but I'm going to get him back. I'm going to get back my son. 
And this is an episode that is clumsy as hell. <laughs> it's a very clunky episode. Uh, but it has these big moments that are really great. And that's why even the worst episodes of Lost have some greatness in them. So, uh, you know, it's going to be hard for me to ever rate an episode of Lost lower than a two. Because uh, there's always going to be at least something that I'll latch onto that I really, really love. And here it's Harold Perrineau's performance. Here it's the setup of the Michael storyline. And he's such a maligned character, both in the writing to large degrees, but I think in, in the fandom uh, that people really uh, don't don't care for the character that much. Um, and he's going to do some pretty awful things deeper down the line, but they're rooted in a moment like this. They're rooted yep. in in this desperation and this hurt that he's uh, that he's had in his entire life. And uh, I think they do a really good job of conveying it here across that flashback scene and the pontoon scene here. Uh, and I just wish that it was in a better episode because uh, I think that these two scenes back to back are are really, really, really beautiful. And it doesn't surprise me at all that it that it's moved you to tears, Mike. Yeah, I mean. If only we didn't have the other 40 minutes of the episode to have to right, sort of exactly, like exactly. deal with it. But no, I, I love the scene. Like you said, I think the vista of the island is beautiful. I think Stephen Williams, you know, he talks about this in the uh, in, in the Lost on Location about sort of how the sea is another character, how it's just it's so calamitous and it's so impulsive that you sort of have to go with it. I guess much like the character's emotions just sort of ebb and flow over the course of this episode. And so... It's so interesting that the water is at rest as well. Obviously, you have this image of the sun rising, which I think also symbolizes the end of a long night and the shift of a mood. What I really love about this scene, it's so small, but Sawyer saying we're home is really interesting to me because let's remember the you know the in the beginning of Exodus Part Two when they look back on the island and they're like, oh, see you never, you know, I'm so I'm never going back there. Going to build my resort and move on, and it sort of is like. I think, A, a bit of happiness, because that means they're not adrift at sea forever. But B, it's almost like a sign of resignation, of like, yep, we're back here. Any plan we had of getting off this island, clearly there are other forces both, you know, under the water and on top of the water that are preventing us to do that. So like it or not, this is our home. And I think it's an important mission statement that, again, signals a big shift from this optimism that we got at the end of season one, working towards getting off the island. That, that's going to come out again, obviously, especially over the course of season four. But this feels like a definitive moment to be like, this is what we're going to concentrate on right now, which is good because I don't want three more episodes of them on the water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You mentioned others. And of course, that is how we're going to end the episode as well. And again, an iconic scene here in Adrift. Let's listen in. And then we see a bunch of cows on two legs coming over the hill. <laughs> 
Yeah. It's a great ending. It's a really, really fun ending. I, I it's, love it's a, the ending yeah. of this episode. Even if it's not actually the others. I remember, you know, uh, the first time watching it being like, oh my God, it's Adewale. Because I, I knew Mr. Right. the, the, the erstwhile yeah. Mr. Echo and, and all of that. So uh, it's fun. It's really, really fun. Yeah, that's the that's a little bit of the issues. I think us diehards had like read so much stuff over the summer that when you see Adewale, and they try to hide him in shadow so you don't think it's him, but you're like, Oh wait, he's not another. They said he was going to be a tailie, but I yeah, think but it was still it was still exciting. Like even oh, if, yeah. from that level, it was like sure, Jin's confused, uh, but here they are. We're getting into the tailies. This is fun. Yeah. Well, also, uh, I don't know if you noticed this, Josh, but the people that are standing next to Mr. Echo. Mr. Echo is the constant here, but there are variables around him, considering that the people that are going to be standing flanking him at the end of this episode are not going to be the same people flanking oh, him at the beginning right? of next episode. No, uh, I believe next episode it's going to be. Bernard, Cindy, Libby, some more familiar tailies, but I think they had a sort of John Terry situation where they hadn't put them in those places yet, so instead it's just a bunch of, like, faceless extras. I actually believe the guy that was supposed to be uh, Bernard Standin has a mustache and doesn't look like him. Oh, that's funny. That's great. Uh, look, e- even with all of that, it's just, it's a great scene. I think, uh, when it, like, often when I'm talking to people who are friends of mine who who loved Lost but haven't, like, watched Lost in a while and we just, like, start to shoot the breeze about it, often the line, others, others, comes up. Uh, so it's just, it's a very iconic line delivery. You remember that moment. Um, and I'm trying to think what's, how does whatever the case may be end, Mike? Just Kate's just playing with her it's plane. The man, it's me from the man I killed. You know, it's just the plane. She's just playing with the plane. And I guess Shannon singing, that was beautiful. I guess they both yeah. end decently well. Um, but I think this is better. Right? Listen, it ended a lot better than Born to Run. That's all that's that matters. True. That's true. That's true. That's true. All right. Let's get into some feedback as we're as we're moving on here uh, to, to keep talking about the episode. Uh, this comes from John Krauss, uh, who, who wants to talk to us about the hatch as a metaphor as we're rehashing Man of Science, Man of Faith a little bit. Um, John wrote in and said, I always thought of the hatch as civilization coming back to our characters. After spending a season away from civilization, most of our characters are better off for it. Uh, season two for me is about what happens when the stuff from the past you were trying to leave behind comes back. Have our characters learned and grown enough on the island to overcome their old demons? You get Charlie back going, going back to drugs, Hurley going back into his mental health problems, Locke literally returning to a desk job, Sawyer going back to conning, etc. This is one of the reasons I really do love season two, but I also think it's why a lot of people don't care for it as much. Not only is it more overtly sci-fi, but it's a little bit darker, too. Yeah, and I think that sort of goes part and parcel of what we were talking about last week of the hatch showing maybe more unsavory newer sides of these characters because i think we've seen a good amount of them grow or at least we've gotten to know a bit more about these characters i mean we've seen charlie you know go through withdrawal and recovery from drugs it sucks to see him get back on the wagon or back off the wagon uh we see sawyer work to be a good guy even in this episode it sucks to see him have to go you know fake kidnapping son to uh to work for charlie's betterment it, it, it stinks to see it happen to these characters but i think it's it's almost natural and that some of these characters do relapse a bit it's sort of like watching bojack horseman where like it sucked that these things happen to them but if you're looking at it from a character-based psychological perspective these things are natural to happen considering these characters and their vices does it make for incredibly emotionally connective television not necessarily but it's a path you can at least understand the markers that are leading you down 
this one came to us from Megan Cherry. Uh, Megan Cherry, <laughs> Megan Cherry says, "I'm a registered nurse, and let's face it, all TV medical drama is extremely inaccurate. But Brian, the intern, definitely should have practiced his intubation skills on the mostly dead man. Uh, this is from obviously uh, Mr. Rutherford. We're talking about. Uh, if all he needed was to be intubated, and then 15 seconds later he was dead, why weren't they doing CPR on him to continue blood flow until more help got?" there that useless intern brian should have called a code blue for more help uh so uh all brian's are bad in uh in the world of lost uh not in the world of down the hatch of course if you're a brian listening to this i'm sure you're swell yes uh though you may not your namesakes might not do well on versus brian's but you know i'm sure it's triggering i'm sure it's triggering uh from david healy david says you mentioned boone but every time i've watched lost and sarah tells jack that i'm letting you off the hook i can't help but get an instant call back to rose saying the exact same line to jack in season one in regards to him keeping her company until bernard is back i think the fact that this line keeps coming up really drives home the point that jack is a determined sob and doesn't easily give up once he's started something uh, yeah, absolutely. I think that that line is following Jack all through Lost uh, for for that exact reason uh, that he he won't let himself off the hook uh, very easily. Uh, but in the final stretch, he he does let himself off the hook when even he has to be like, yeah, I think I probably did enough. Right, and I think it also speaks to an element of cooperation where we talked about Sawyer being a man who puts himself on an island or a renegade pontoon, but Jack is someone like that too. Of like, I'm going to put my body on the line to contribute to the greater good. As it were, and I think he slowly begins to learn of like, no, 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 you need people to help you out. You need son serving as a nurse here. I guess to David's point, one of the reasons why I associate it more with Boone than Rhodes is just because the Boone death scene is so iconic. But to David's point, it's sort of like when you hear a phrase and you realize like, oh, yeah, that phrase actually showed up like a few episodes earlier. The famous scene was not the first time that was mentioned. Right. Uh, from Scott French, what's the deal with Desmond's <laughs> intricate mirror and telescope setup? Uh, what is the possible backstory on this being built? I know we, can, we, we had can, questions. We can't put that. Seinfeld down the hatch. He's just going to monologue to himself all the time. Yeah. Is this a, did did George create the mirror and telescope setup? Is this his invention? Yeah. He's so lazy. Of like, look, I don't want to get up. I'm just going to look <laughs> through this telescope and I look through the mirrors. They'll do, they'll do the work for you. Uh, uh, was Costanza a constant? Uh, was he uh, was he a candidate, rather? Was he somebody who could have been on the, the lighthouse? I actually, I could see Kramer becoming like an Alvar Hanso type, you know? <laughs> That'd be great. Uh, all right. Uh, so we, we mentioned before that the, that the room where Michael and Susan and their lawyers are meeting is the same as from Raised by Another. Here's another note about um, the production of Lost as it pertains to Adrift. This is from the DVD commentary for Man of Science, Man of Faith, uh, that Adrift is going to mark the final appearance of The Caves until season six from a production standpoint they felt they had struggled to make the caves a compelling set to shoot on and so they replaced the use of the caves with the swan hatch uh now mike i i knew that that was going to happen eventually that we are going to abandon the caves and it really does just for whatever reason we're, we're fully back on the beach and nobody cares about the caves anymore um but i didn't remember when that switch occurred but i guess that scene with charlie and claire we talked about before is uh that's it uh, huh. curtain, curtain call in the caves until the final year of Lost. I'm talking about going out with a whimper instead of a bang. If that's indeed the last major scene that takes place in the caves for a while. I mean, I guess then did they succeed in their ultimate goal of getting everyone down the hatch in some way, shape, or form, yeah. even though they realized that it was not exactly the bunker they wanted? Yeah, maybe. That could be. Could be. Wow. 
R.I.P. Caves, man. R.I.P. Caves. Uh, yeah, that's it. It's it's over for the caves until until we finally get back into the the Adam and Eve of it all. What? How do you feel about that? Because I mean, that was we talked about. It, that's where Boone died. It feels like it's it's a significant place, but I guess maybe to Shannon's point, like if there, maybe that's almost like uh, treating it as like a I don't know some sort of some sort of sacred place that maybe if we do too much there, that it sort of impugns on the reputation of the caves, and we now we sort of crystallize that moment and leave that location with the knowledge that that was where that big moment and lost happened, and nothing else is going to. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's fine. I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that. I, and then I think it's just like from the practical perspective of like it was built on a soundstage and we're not going to shoot there anymore, so let's just scrap it, right? Like I think like that's realistically why we don't go back there. But I, I, I for it to have been such a, a huge piece of do no harm, which we loved so much, um, to to think of it as like uh, really iconically associated with that episode, uh, I'm, I'm fine to, I'm fine to move on from there. We're going to let it go. Let it We're going to let it go. We're letting it off the hook. Uh, this is from Andre the Meat Man. What the heck happened with Jin? In Exodus, he dived into the water going after Sawyer. Now, assuming Jin is a decent swimmer, which seems likely, and noting that Sawyer was shot, how exactly did Jin miss him in the water? And what circumstances suggested that he power swim back to the island without looking back? Um... So I have, as I've mentioned, Mike, I've got no problem with Jin going into the water and swimming back to the island. And in fact, I'm very impressed with him uh, for getting back to the to the island so quickly. Um, but if you take an, a visibility issue that he was such a good swimmer, but he doesn't even see Sawyer, could it be that he saw the shark and got so scared of the shark? He's like, I got to get out of here before the shark oh, gets wow. to me. Oh, wow. I would assume that Jin would take a piece of bamboo, sharpen it, and go hunting for the shark. That's just yeah. who Jin is. Yeah, but he not not that quick on the fly. He, you know, could, he, he's fast enough to get away. But Could it be that Jin was also like, well, this plan's screwed. Going back to sun. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> got to get there before the sun rises. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Uh, Dave Baker had said, please comment on how the use of cinematography contributes to the sense of foreboding in this episode. Does it? So here's, <laughs> here's, here's harsh, the thing but... that I find yeah, yeah. interesting is that when you invariably film at sea, everything's moving out of sync, which probably makes it a nightmare from a filming perspective, right? Yeah. Because between the camera and the lighting rigs and the actors themselves, like you're never going to get a perfect frame now, I guess we're talking about it from a thematic perspective that sort of represents how Sawyer and Michael are never really seeing eye to eye over the course of this episode. That being said, another reason why the shark stuff doesn't really work for me personally is it, it just doesn't, it feels too dark. You know, it feels too murky. And so I would not say that it necessarily represents foreboding. I'd say it more so represents just how roughshod and wavy it is quite literally between these two guys less so about the terror that lurks underneath uh stefan johnson had earlier asked us about what the episode looks like if the sawyer flashbacks are still there stefan also writes in about um what the show could have done with michael but ultimately doesn't uh stefan says is losing walt from the show a total loss i think it had the possibility to free up michael from the restraints of just being a father some of michael's most fun moments in season one are when he is something more than just walt's dad the show doesn't really go in this direction um I think the problem with that, Mike, 
can really be epitomized actually by your very emotional reaction to that that scene at the end of the episode where Michael says goodbye to Walt. Um, you can't just write Walt out of a show like Lost for Michael and have that be anything other than the only thing Michael is focused on. Um, like, yeah, is Michael just a father? No, he's more than that for sure. But if his son is uh, wrested away from him in such a shocking, jarring, uh, traumatic fashion, for Michael's story to ever be anything other than being inextricably tied to Walt uh, would feel kind of unrealistic to me, right? Well, yeah, because that's the entire reason why he's on the island in the first place was because he went to get Walt. His entire existence right now is tied to that character. And I think even if you get rid of Walt, Michael's a hugely changed character based on that. Like, I think if Stefan is looking for good time Mike, uh, you know, golfing Mike, I think if you take Walt away, you're still not going to get that. You're going to get a man who is profoundly grieving. And yeah, there might be some lighter moments, but I think he's going to be a substantially different man than he was in season one. So I think, unfortunately, you can't really have your Apollo bars and eat it, too, in this case. Yeah, speaking of Apollo bars, Ariel Kalish Glassman uh, writes in, if, if, if it was you in the supply closet, would you be satisfied to just take some Apollo bars to go? Or would you have gone for something else? Based on the food seen in the pantry, what would you have eaten or made before escaping oh, now i i jump on those pork loins josh uh there are uh, sadly no actual pork loins i did i did chronicle what i saw in there so there's the peaches there's like at least three or four jars of olives so if you're an olive fan yeah. uh i'm not a huge olive guy myself uh there's a there's a jar of pickles there's apparently like a box of sausages that might be nice uh although everyone's pretty used to pork products at that point uh lots of nuts maybe take a sip of that mountain dew uh, there's a bunch of cans of pork and beans. Uh, I don't think I would just want that raw. I think I'd want to cook it. Yeah, see, th- that's the thing with the sausage as well. Is like, if it takes any prep time, you can't really I, do that. <laughs> I expect the sausage is just like dried sausage that you could just eat. And probably the pork and beans you could safely just eat out of the can too, but it would be very room temperature and weird and you'd want to heat it up. Well, I think the better question is, what food do you want up your butt? You know, because if you think about transport, that's going to be a big, big concern. I hate to break it to you, but I'm pretty sure that she didn't have the chocolate bars up her butt. Like I don't, think, <laughs> I don't think that that's how she smuggled the Apollo bars out of there. Um, I think we might have to have a Could conversation you like, uh, about like anatomy. Kate, Kate falls out of the vent and it's like a pinata with just like Apollo bars falling out of everywhere. Um, that's very scary to think about. I'm going to choose to to not to not think about it um i know jim fells did some music analysis for this episode as always we will of course link to it in our show notes any notes from that for you mike it is a whopper it is 21 minutes because jim, wow. jim tabulates that a 14 musical themes and motifs are introduced in this episode oh it's right we'll go through them all but uh just to uh, let's I'll, I'll talk about the final sound that we talked about the theme that plays when jim runs off to greet michael and sawyer as the others approach him from over the hill uh, introduces what's known as an others musical motif which is interesting because giacchino initially used it to score you know these this questionable group of people who we think are others but turn out to be tailies but then he sort of retrofits it later on to use it to essentially refer to like anyone who's not an 815 so like it's used for desmond it's used for the ajira people with the isabel of it all in seasons five and six so it's not the literal others 
but it's anyone who is not on Oceanic Flight 815, or at least not our fuselage people. Amazing. Okay, so check out that video. We will link to it in our show notes. Let's go to the 23 points, Mike Bloom. This week, I'm giving out two MVPs. You're giving out three. You're giving out two LVPs. I'm giving out three. Uh, Mike, what do you want to? how do you want to start here uh, with your MVPs this week? I gotta give a point to Sawyer, because despite his, you know, uh, begrudging attitude towards the blame being thrown his way, unfairly so in my opinion, he hurls Mike onto the raft and saves his life from drowning. He pulls a bullet out of his shoulder. Like, Sawyer gets a lot of badass points this week, and he is also a bit of a supportive shoulder to cry on for Michael, just not that shoulder, the one that's hopefully not bullet right in. So he gets a point here for me. Normally, I give uh, my my MVP point in response to that, but I probably should tell you I'm giving Sawyer an LVP point this week. Uh, Why is that? <laughs> so he's kind of neutralized. Because uh, he's such a complainer, and all the complaining between <laughs> him and Michael is ridiculous. And what are you doing hopping in the water uh, with that bloody shoulder when a shark was right there? Uh, just because Michael's being mean to you, like get your priorities straight, man. I don't know. I mean, like I don't, I don't begrudge you the points that you're giving him for pulling the bullet out of his shoulder and being a bit of a badass there. Uh, but he also is a bit of a punk this episode too. So I think he kind of just cancels out. Well, this will be, you know, the most we hear Sawyer just vocalize for a while before he eventually just like starts succumbing to blood poisoning. So yeah. I'm, I'm taking advantage here. Sure, sure. All right. So what's your next MVP point? I'm gonna give one to Michael. And look, I know that, again, he was not acting in his best behavior towards Sawyer in uh, the main storyline. Maybe call us a pity point. I feel legitimately horrible for what he had to deal with in the flashback. And this is another acting point as well. I think Harold Perrineau just shows how much he's able to thread a needle most of the time when it comes to Michael Dawson, a character that maybe not may not be written as strongly as a lot of other characters. But damn if he doesn't put on a good performance. And I don't know if that goodbye scene between Michael and Walt would move me to tears the same way if Harold Perrineau wasn't the one doing it. No, Harold Perrineau is incredible. Uh, you'll, never, you'll never hear me say otherwise. Lo- long-time fan of Harold Perrineau, as established here on Down the Hatch. Uh, with that being said, I'm, I'm giving him an LVP point this week. Wow! <laughs> We're just completely <laughs> like keeping the scales balanced here. No rise or fall for these two poor men. I mean, he's so mean to Sawyer, and like he <laughs> splashes Sawyer's raft into non-existence. Uh, they're just like the the bickering between these two is just too much for me to handle this week. Uh, so, <laughs> so yeah, I guess there's uh there's no movement for Michael or Sawyer. Yeah, here. even though uh, the, even though the two of them do move a lot from where they start the episode yeah. physically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um. All right. I mean, you get a third MVP point, so you have a oh, shot Lord. at actually moving somebody up. I don't know. You, you have you have one more <laughs> LVP point. I'm afraid yeah. you're just gonna like we're just gonna keep firing back and forth at one another. Yeah. Uh, well, you know what? This is a long time coming, but Locke, welcome to the MVP club once again. Here. Yeah. Uh, we we we, th- we threw some praise his way. I think the way that he both approached the quick thinking to uh, you know have Kate tied up, knowing she'd escape, while also encountering Desmond being very cordial and candid with him, I think was the right way to approach things. So even though it seems suspect uh, at the top of things, I think he maybe filled some ideas from his father and learned how to, you know, approach a person, assess their personality and then learn to get their whims based on that. Yeah. Uh, so I, I guess I'll respond to that by saying uh, I will indeed give John Locke a point here too. Uh, so that's oh. my first MVP point on the board. So Locke's actually getting two MVP points here uh, this week. Uh, for all the reasons that you said. I think Locke is pretty clever in this episode, and it's fairly impressive. 
Um, and I'm also going to give an MVP point to my girl, Kate. Uh, she's got the great, great pantry scene. Very clever uh, with uh, with getting up into the vents and everything like that. She, you know, she's dealt a crummy hand, and I think she she plays it really, really well. Um, so uh, we actually do get some movement on the MVPs, despite the the Sawyer and Michael stuff. And we um, are we are girding the pork loins for Locke next week for his big flashback episode. Yeah, so you know he may be on the rise again. Um, LVPs. I've already given you uh, two of my three. I'll just spoil the third. Goes to Law and Order. Uh, the mm-hmm. lawyers. They're both awful. Uh, one more awful than the other, but they're both not very good. Yeah, this is just this just really exacerbates the situation. And Lizzie and Saul, they're just they're terrible, and they they really put Michael in a very very bad situation that you hate to see. And they really contribute to why I'm not a huge fan of these flashbacks overall, just because it really feels like piling on this poor character. And do you, do you, Josh, I have two LVP points here. I'm fill in the blank for me. Who do you think? I'm giving these two LVP points to one person who we're saying goodbye to. Unfortunately, oh my heart breaks that we won't talk about her anymore. But who who might I be? Giving oh, these I thought that to? you were going to say that it was to Walt because we had just said goodbye to Walt at the end of this episode. Nope, it was the woman holding Walt's hand and who was late for having him say <laughs> goodbye to his father because they had to pack uh. Susan. GTFO. Bye bye. <laughs> bye See bye. you later. Smell you never. <laughs> All right. Two points to Susan. Uh, so the season two rankings as they stand, I'll still read them while they're manageable. Kate is in the lead with two points. Desmond, Jack, Shannon, Sarah, and Locke all have one point each. Uh, Michael and Sawyer could have had one point each, but I made that uh, not a thing. So they're they're both zeroed out for season two so far. Law and Order is a negative one. Uh, Shannon's father, Mr. Rutherford, he died. Negative one. Susan now Thanks, negative Brian. two. But the, but the fiance douche uh, remains a, a, a negative three. Uh, by giving Susan two negative points, though, um, in terms of the grand scheme of things, series totals, Susan is currently tied in last at LVP with negative four. Um, but she's not going to have another shot to move any way or the other. She's tied with Anthony Cooper, who will certainly have further to sink. I well, listen, I'm, I'm fine having her assume the, the bottom spot right now. I'm happy to say goodbye to the character. I guess now, Josh, should I throw out my alternate take on a flashback scene for Adrift? Because it really involves mi- minimal Susan. So that yeah. really puts it uh, at least in a, you know, a good start. So let's hear it. Let's hear here's it. My alter- here's my alternate idea for a flashback for this episode. Because, again, I think the issue is we are quite literally relitigating what we heard during that conversation between Susan and Michael of, I'm taking Walt away. I'll fight you. You can't. I have lawyers. You're going to get beat in court. That's exactly what happens. Here's my alternate idea for a flashback. So this takes place after his accident. He heals, and Susan and Brian take off with Walt. Michael can't do anything. Michael starts a relationship with a woman. He's finally getting back on the market after all the heartbreak with Susan. He's very fond of her. One day, she decides to break some news to him that she has a son that she wants Michael to meet. And Michael, at this point, has really tried to move on from the entire process and tried to really substantiate himself both as a contractor and, I guess, just as a person in the dating world. But when Michael starts to get on well with this kid, it starts to bring to surface the feelings of what he could have had with Walt and the torment of having Walt taken from him. So he then is able to... He uses his girlfriend's credit card secretly to buy a trip to Rome... And he goes to the doorstep of Susan, basically begging her to let him see Walt, Christian Shepherd style. She refuses, and he essentially flies back to the States, 
heartbroken. His girlfriend breaks up with him because she basically says, like, you were lying to me behind my back. And now Michael is basically left where we find him here at the end of a drift. Uh, destitute, heartbroken, but someone who maybe we're seeing a different side of him, you know, and him engaging in a different relationship and seeing a bit of what his life was like without Walt in it. It sounds a little similar to the uh, the John Locke flashback arc of season two. Uh, yeah. Of like Helen is like, don't go see your dad. And Locke's like, fine, I won't see him. And then he goes and he sees him and she breaks up with him. Yeah, I mean, I was definitely thinking about that as well, especially when it comes to like, the character being like, wow, you lied to me, so therefore I'm going to break things off with you. But that that's just sort of my initial idea. Again, I don't mean to, uh, you know, replace ideas that some of these writers came up with, but I was trying to figure out a way to give a part of Michael's story that still resonates with that Walt stuff, but doesn't necessarily have to have us repeat the events of things we found out in special. And I feel like maybe going this area of looking at how Michael treats things without Walt in his life could be a way to do so. That accesses different parts of his character that maybe to Stefan's point uh, might be a bit of like the who's Michael if he's not a dad. Yeah. Um, well, I, I want to get into just talking about the episode with our with our final takes a second. Really quickly, uh, before we do that, um, just a correction on the MVP, LVP for people who are tracking this closely. Uh, ben, ben Martell points out that we've been saying uh, Jin has four points recently. He actually has three points. Uh, there was a mistake that happened when he nearly got a point and do no harm, uh, but he did not get one. So... Uh, he has only three points right now because I know a lot of people really, really care about that. Um, <laughs> with what you've just said, Micah, let's let's take this to the the four point two stars section and and come to a point where we're gonna where we're gonna rank adrift. Uh, back in the day, I ranked whatever the case may be a two point one out of four point two, and in retrospect, I probably should have rated it lower uh, so that I'd have like a lower threshold. Because I think that a drift for me, ultimately, it's hard for me to say that it is better or worse than whatever the case may be. I think it's about as bad. Uh, so I'm giving it a 2.1 as well. The thing about a drift is what it does right, it does a lot better than whatever the case may be. And it has... Mo it has a, a couple of real high points. Um, some scenes that I that I just genuinely really, really, really enjoy. Um, but it also just like, you know, really, uh, circles the circles, the raft so often, uh, with so, such repetition that is really frustrating. And the raft scenes themselves are, are almost all not good as far as I'm concerned. Um, I really don't like whatever the case may be. I really don't care for a drift that much. This episode, just not one of my favorites. Uh, may, maybe in the future I can I can go back and retroactively knock both of these scores a little bit lower, but I think that they're about on par with each other. They're both uh, like I think whatever the case may be is just like across the board not very good, and adrift is is worse in in some uh more important ways than whatever the case may be, but it's tempered a little bit by what it does have. That's that's really really good. Like this episode legitimately made you cry, Mike Bloom. Right, that's what I'm going to get. Like so many people in in my ads being like, "Oh, the episode made you cry, but you gave it a 1.8," which is what I'm doing. <laughs> okay, I'm giving right. it a 1.8, okay. and and let me explain here is that I personally, because I think what you're really discussing are two pragmatical approaches to lost episodes in terms of ratings, whether it's peaks and valleys or the overall mountain climb, as it were. And when it comes to analyzing that, I'm personally more of the latter than I am the former. 
like I would much rather be invested in a very consistent episode over something that had, hey, a few fun moments, but some really not good moments. And so from that perspective, I personally still think that Adrift is a worse episode than whatever the case may be. I talked about it in whatever the case may be that I still find the Shannon and Saeed stuff really good. And I find the Charlie and Rose stuff absolutely fascinating. I can't really find these moments in Adrift. Like I said, the entire last act is really good. I think that the hatch stuff is interesting. I still question whether it was necessary, the choice to really go back and show these events, especially with how they plotted them out throughout the episode. This feels like a very messy episode to me. And it's rare that we talk about that with Lost, especially at this point. And like I said, there are still some things that I enjoyed about this episode, but you also mentioned trying to find a lower threshold. And that's what I've been really trying to figure out as well is how do I rate episodes that I don't necessarily like? And it rates below a two for me, not much further below a two because I still think that there are things that I enjoy and appreciate about the episode, but there's just so much about it that I really am not a fan of. And I feel like was done poorly that it's, it's going to get a 1.8 for me. It's, it's my lowest score by far, and I would not be surprised, Josh, if it's one of my lowest scores that I give out the entire series. So uh, much like The Raft came apart and Michael and Sawyer were uh, adrift on different pieces of The Raft, uh, we are a bit askew or even askew uh, from the from the audience. So you've got my data point 2.1. We've got yours 1.8. The audience average on this episode is a 2.8 as it currently stands, Mike. Uh, we've got some people who were really high on a drift. I see a 3.9. I see what? a 4. Someone went as high as a 4 on a drift. Oh, I know. That, that was Saul and Lizzie, right? They were the ones <laughs> like, excellent legal work, 4.2. There's some mid threes uh, in here and some twos as well. Uh, but I think that you and I are are on the lower end here. And since our uh, our voices carry such authority, Mike, uh, I think we are going to help this raft sink to the bottom of the ocean. Because currently, with my 2.1, with your 1.8, and with the audience average of 2.8, we're looking at a 2.24 for a drift. Uh, very cleanly worse than Man of Science, Man of Faith, as it currently stands. And we will get into its full place in the Lost Pantheon when we get to the Season 2 feedback show. Yes, though, though uh, I will say right now, it is edging out whatever the case may be, which has an average of 2.178. Okay, so just just above it as as it stands. Uh, I imagine orientation will be leaps and bounds ahead of a drift, uh, and orientation is what we are getting into next week, dropping on Valentine's Day. Ooh! Uh, a lovely little present from us here on Down the Hatch to yeah, you that's going to be dropping 214. We got you a box of chocolates, but mm-hmm. maybe wash your hands and wash them before digging into them because they may or may not have been no. butt. <laughs> no, you just don't know. You don't know where they've been. Uh, get that feedback into us by the morning of February 11th is when we are going to record. And of course, uh, hopefully there is already a bonus down the hatch episode in your podcast feed. Uh, if not, there will be one soon. And hey, beyond that, there may even be yet another bonus down the hatch Woo! coming your way very soon. Listen, much like a, a three-episode uh, premiere event, basically, for the start of season two. Uh, we're just, like, doubling up with the the bonus episodes here. On, yeah, on I would say, hatch. yeah, don't expect this to be a regularity. <laughs> this is not a regular thing. Not a regular thing. We're just having some fun right now. Uh, feedback, send it in at Post Show Recaps, at Round Howard, at a Mike Bloom type, or email us down the hatch at 
postshowrecaps.com. Subscribe if you have not done so already on your podcast app of choice. If you like the Apple feed, postshowrecaps.com slash down the hatch is your way to get us there. Your ratings and reviews greatly appreciated. Mike, anything else before we close out Adrift? So I just wanted to say that I feel like this is a different podcast than whatever the case may be, because I think this feels like the first episode that we have been pretty wholly down on. And so I hope that people still had fun. I think we were still trying to find positivity there. Lord knows I was certainly emotionally moved at some parts as well. I know this is an episode that some people greatly admire, and I'm not going to disparage anyone's opinions, but... You know, I think this was a test for us as well as it was for a lot of the creators of the show with this episode as to see like, okay, when there are episodes that we don't necessarily love, how can we break them down? And I had a lot of fun doing it. Josh, I'm sure you did as well. And hopefully other people did too. But if you have feedback about that, let us know. You know, yeah. we're, we're, we're happy to sort of break things down because Lord knows we'll be encountering some episodes that we do not love down the line with Lost. I do not think that there is anybody who could reasonably question our love for Lost. Uh, I, I don't think that that's possible. I think you could try, and if you tried it, I think it would be a foolish attempt. Uh, we've given you usually three-hour episodes of Lost every week, sometimes as much as five-hour episodes of, of Lost podcasting. Uh, so clearly we love the show. Sometimes we didn't love an episode. Much fewer and further between than the, than the, than the episodes we love. We've gotten through a drift. We've survived a drift. I'm very excited to get into orientation next week mm-hmm. and finally really start digging into the Dharma Initiative. I think that's going to be amazing. So we will be back next week doing all of that. Until then, everybody, take care. Goodbye. Four, eight, 15, 16, 24, 24, 8, 15, 16, 24, 24, 8, 15, 16, 24, 24, 8, 15, 16, 24, 24, 8, 15, 16, 24, 24, 8, 15, 16, 24, 24, 8, 15, 